Hey, there he is, in the middle. What's he staring at? Did Nyad sink in the canal? Oh God, I hope not. He's not living with me. Oh fuck. Better not be the boat because he's not staying with me. We might actually need to find out what's bothering him. Always a risk to ask. He tends to actually tell you, but I think we gotta do it. And he wept, for there were no more pods left to cast. Hey, Greg! What's up, buddy? What you doing out here? Everything okay, dude? You haven't been yourself since you got back from New York. I've heard a lot of people jump from here, you know, to end it all. No, that's the Aurora Bridge up there, (coughs) way up there. This is the Fremont Bridge. Oh, that makes sense. I guess you could die jumping from here if you fell face first onto a passing barge or something. Your boat didn't sink, did it? Nyad? No, same as ever. Still a really clever, efficient, and cute living situation I remain very happy with. Why? Thank God. Thank God. Oh, thank God. So glad to hear that. How you doing, man? Everything good? Well, since you've responded to my call for help, I guess I'll tell you. It's the podcast. Ah, great. I just don't know if I've got it anymore. I've lost my groove. My mojo. I'm... I'm all out of rants. Shit. This is bad. This is really bad, dude. Fuck. I've used them all up. All the obsessions, the insights, the bitterness and bile. I carried it around for so long. Look, Munya. I don't want to listen to any of this shit. Uh, let's just whisper about him right in front of him while he soliloquizes. Just like we always do. I can't hear you. You know that before the show, I used to talk to myself in public? I would wander around town, over this bridge, through the grocery store, audibly muttering. I would lose track of myself, hovering over the organic broccoli, repeating a sotto voce screed about the bank bailouts or recycling. Imagine the look in my eyes, how crazed I must have seemed. And maybe I was. But all that's gone now. I've exercised all my demons for content. There's nothing left to care about. And when I try to go back to the well, I find it's run dry. It's like so many promising artists whose early work is so powerful. You know, they've spent a lifetime building pressure and then explode. Years working and honing a few key ideas into razors. When those are gone, when they're out in the world, that's when they start to disappoint you, I think. Grasping desperately for a new concept, trying to reclaim the thrill, the magic. I ranted because it had to come out. There was no question of what to rant about or why. There was no keeping it in. What had been so well rehearsed had to be expressed, and now, having said it all, I'm left to search for my next idea. All my politics takes are took. Greg, we just want you to know you're valid for that. When I try to put myself in the shoes of a podcaster experiencing or feeling inadequacy, 
I just try to picture our audience, and I feel better. You'll bounce back, Greg. I'm just glad this wasn't a real problem. We're doing talk radio, bud. The important thing is to stop caring and just keep churning out the slop. I don't know if I can just go through the motions, fellas. Well, look, maybe it's just time to experiment, you know, like in college. Spice it up a little. Think outside the box if you find it absolutely necessary. For sure. Whatever you need to do, we'll support you, Greg. Take some time off if you need to. Yeah, take time off. You guys really mean that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. I did have one idea. I've been thinking. You know, under capitalism, everything around us, our, our whole world, everything we've been taught, it's all poison. And, and there's nothing we can do collectively. How do you, as a communist, address something you really only have power over as an individual? A liberalized consumer voting with your dollar for your own health and well-being. Maybe I could use the show to start to explore this. There's the philosophical, of course, uh, the guilt. There's the history of our food system, the bad capitalist science, the corrupt and literally bought off recommendations of the medical establishment. And then there's the practical, the things our listeners could really choose to use in their lives. Should you spend more on organic? What really is the deal with seed oils and supplements? Our listeners could really benefit from my health obsession and the hours upon neurotic hours I've spent sorting through the bullshit to find out What vast array of supplements you really should take? No, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. It's not happening. On God. Thanksgiving special? Thanksgiving special. That's right. It's time for the Thanksgiving Pageant Spectacular. We don't need no education. Holiday warning. Today, America gathers to celebrate murder. The murder of the indigenous people of the continent, of our queer and trans friends, of you and me and us. It's a bad day in a bad place, but we'll spend it together. To Mechanical Freak from those two cities of the future, the yin and yang of American urbanism, the Veradur and Orthanc of neoliberal dystopia, one being slowly transformed into the other, one rain shell at a time. Today is Thanksgiving, and on this show that means variety, pageantry, and introspection. I'm Greg, and I'm here spending the holiday with my boys. Munya and Brian. Hey, Greg. These cranberries are delicious. Uh, they're next level, man. You, all, you always deliver with the food. Yeah, usually you'd have like turkey with it or something, but I mean, just cranberries on a plate is good, too. It's, it's different, man. Look, no one ever puts the sauce on the turkey like you're supposed to. I'm moving beyond that, and the sauce is the entree. You ready for this Thanksgiving? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm feeling great. Uh, you know, the folks are 2,000 miles away. It's the way Thanksgiving's supposed to be. God, isn't that nice uh, to be spending Thanksgiving here with you and to have an excuse. I told my family this year, uh, two branches of it in two different directions. And they thought to themselves, Greg, you'll have to choose which way are you going? And I said, podcasting. Huh. <laughs> Greg's a podcaster going his own way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd much rather be spending it, uh, spending the holiday with you guys. You know, so many of you, our listeners, are out there traveling, spending time with your family, looking for ways to tune them out. If you're familiar with our Thanksgiving specials from the past few years, perhaps you've been anticipating this. Perhaps you are at the Thanksgiving table right now. Maybe it's all trimmed out with turkey and stuffing and cranberry sauce, candles flickering, faces chewing, open mod. And now a powerful dryness comes over your mouth. You try to chew, but it's no use. You reach for a drink and no, can that be all there is? The stemmed water goblet embossed with Christmas trees and Santa on his sleigh filled to the brim with Martinelli's gold medal sparkling apple cider and oh, there she is mother her eyes fix on you now, her lips they move, but not like the others, she's speaking to you, but oh, it it's alright you can't hear her you can't hear any of them. You're wearing massive, open-back audiophile cans. All you can hear is the sound of my voice. It's going to be a long one, because you've got a lot of time to kill. Don't feel like you have to stuff it all down in one sitting. Let it take the whole weekend if that's what you need. We're here for you. And for you, we have quite a show. We've got something mysterious, something literary... Of course, Brian has our annual check-in on the great humanitarian works of the Gates Foundation and what its eponymous great white savior has been up to in Africa. Looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, good times ahead. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, we've got Bryn for some holiday entertaining tips. Say hi, Bryn. Hi. <laughs> Friend of the show, Justin, will be here with some movie reviews. We've got a labor interview from which I'm hoping to learn the real reason grad students are not working class. Not what you think. <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> and of course, stay tuned for another installment of Thanksgiving Live Storytelling Radio. This year, we've got another Greg tale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this sounds like a great audio banquet that's just being laid out in front of you. But just like Thanksgiving, you don't got to scarf it all down in one sitting, all right? That's right. Take your time, enjoy it. Okay, take your phone. Maybe your parents are selfish. They didn't buy you some Beats by Dre, right? Take your phone, turn the speaker volume all the way to max. All right, set it down on the table in front of you and just hit play. Is mom telling you to turn it down? Just rewind it so you don't miss the great japes and gabs that we're having. All right, but sit back and enjoy the show. And and when you find a moment to step away, like 
when you offer to do the dishes just to get away from your parents, or when you manage to get out to take a walk. You know what? That's when you can hit pause and save the action for when you need to tune out your family. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, a lot, a lot to come. But first, but first, if you fellas are ready, oh, we're ready. You know it. What would Thanksgiving be without some high culture? As part of our pivot away from politics, Brian is going to be exploring the classic literary genre of the 19th century, the mystery. So put on your robe, pack your pipe, and get comfortable in your overstuffed windbag. Michael Rockefeller is missing. He has been missing since 1961. The son of Nelson Rockefeller and member of the Rockefeller family, the closest thing that the United States has to royalty, this kind of tragedy was not supposed to happen to him. He was once on top of the world. Now he finds himself in Brian's closet of mystery. Hmm. As a young boy, Michael never took a shine to the business side of the Rockefeller dynasty, preferring to travel with his father to art galleries and auction houses as his father set about building the family's massive private collection. He began to gravitate toward primitive art in the field of anthropology after viewing an exhibit of tribal artifacts at the Museum of Primitive Art, which his mother had just founded. While at Harvard, Michael studied history and economics, but his love for art remained. Upon graduation, Michael went on an expedition to study the Dani people in New Guinea. While there, he frequently broke from his film crew to explore other areas of the island. New Guinea, a Dutch colony at the time, was famed for having some of the last largely untouched human settlements on the planet. The island was populated by a huge variety of cultures with divergent lifestyles and customs despite living in relative proximity to one another. This diversity was created by the rather thick jungle, which allowed communities to coexist with minimal interaction. It was an anthropologist's dream. Michael wanted to visit the Asmat people on the south side of the island. Anthropologists on the expedition warned Michael against trying to make the journey. The Asmat had little contact with the outside world, and were rumored by the Dutch to be headhunters. Even the Dutch guides that he talked to initially refused to take him to the little explored section of the island. But Michael was a Rockefeller. After some negotiating with the Dutch colonial government, Michael was given a guide and permission to visit the Asmat people. While visiting the villages of the subsistence hunter-gatherers, Michael bought up bowls, drums, paddles, and shields Cane and steel axes, fish hooks, and tobacco. But what really caught the young billionaire's eye were large, ornately carved wooden poles that he saw standing in a field near one of the villages. His guide explained that these were bish poles, ritual artworks carved after a tribal member had died. In Asmat culture, it was believed that death was not an accident, but represented a rupture with the natural balance of the world. 
when a tribal member died, a bish pole would be built and placed in a ceremonial house. Attached to the bish pole would be the identity of another person who had to be killed to restore the balance. The creation of these poles usually indicated that the tribe was about to raid another village. Once the offending villager was killed, their blood was rubbed into the pole in a ceremony that signified the transfer of that person's spirit into the pole. Once this grisly toll had been collected, the poles were laid out in the palm fields to rot, returning the spirit to the earth and resetting the natural balance. Michael was obsessed with these 20-foot tall poles. His guide advised him that since these poles were in the palm fields, the ritual had been completed and he could try to negotiate for them. Michael did and got his first fish poles for his family's collection. Moving into more remote regions, Michael next came upon the village of Ostjanep. He noticed a series of five bish poles standing in one of the village houses. His guide advised Michael that this meant that the ceremony had not been completed and they should move on. Michael would not be deterred, however. He negotiated with the villagers to purchase the poles, and after a sizable down payment, they agreed on a meeting time and place in the jungle. one I got. Oh, hey, Brian. Hey, Munya. Uh, how are things going? Bad. Without our weekly Ending the Myth potting sessions, I'm just telling everyone I meet random stories from the Cold War. Just the other day, I started telling an old lady at the bus stop about how in the 1950s, the Air Force used to drug Himalayan black bears and strap them into rocket ejection seats for, um, science? That's not so bad. She told me that I inspired her to buy a car. Ugh. Well, maybe you just caught her on the wrong day. It wasn't just her. Ever since I started telling my students about how the U.S. government pitched using nuclear weapons to aid in highway construction by blowing holes in the sides of mountains, my attendance has fallen to virtually zero. I'm alienating everyone around me. Man, I hear you, Brian. I try to tell my cousin about how the whole government is putting fluoride in the water to control your mind thing was just made up by a candy CEO. And when I started quoting from the blue book of the John Birch Society... He just walked away, mid-speech. I haven't heard from him since. I know. My mom even told me that if I bring up the fact that Nixon used to watch the movie Patton over and over again one more time, she was going to block my number. I mean, the President of the United States didn't get that the movie is a rebuke of not just the old general, but of militarism writ large. He forced his entire staff to watch it in order to get pumped about a plan to invade Cambodia. Bruh. (laughs) It's been affecting my work. Last week, my boss warned me that if I bring up in just one more meeting that the Soviet Union created a shell company to speculate in American markets in the 1970s, they were going to have to let me go. 
but they were able to buy grain low and sell high because they had spies in the American Department of Agriculture reading the crop reports. They literally did the scam from trading places. (laughs) All of this unsanctioned Cold War history talk, it's ruining our lives. I think that there's really only one thing we can do. Yeah, but will society allow it? Can we bring our history podcast back after even the Pope in Rome intervened to tell us that it was too based? (sighs) At this point, I don't think we have a choice. Are we back? Yeah, I'm thinking we're back. That's right. Ending the myth, the podcast where we explore the cold, dark abyss that is American history with the help of Greg Grandin's book, The End of the Myth, is back. We are going to be revisiting all the hits of the last 60 years of American history. The Vietnam War. The urban crisis. Creating the suburbs and other Lynchian horrors. Neoliberalism. The anti-labor history of NC technology. The invasion of Iraq. The second invasion of Iraq. (laughs) The time we finance Iraq's invasion of Iran. And much, much more. We're going to have more guests, more jokes, and more depressing history than ever. That's right. Ending the myth is back. Because what else are you going to do at the end of history? I, for one, am very excited for the return of Ending the Myth. But seriously, I can't wait for that to come back. Uh, I'm, I'm actually caught up in the book now. Damn. Re- ready for more episodes to drop. And uh, so can we nail you guys down to a firm date? Well, uh, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, let's just say maybe first, second week of December, something like that. Keep an eye uh, to the sky. And, Watch this uh, space. I will say, and Greg, make sure that you cut this out of the audio for the episode sure. because, you know, Greg, uh, our other friend Greg told us to keep this on, on the DL, but, uh, Greg Grandin, you know, of course we're in constant contact, did tell us, Hey, I'm really excited for you guys to finish the series and finish correcting my work. Uh, yes. I really think that I, I kind of fumbled the bag on this one after hearing you guys, you know, I thought it was a masterpiece. Then, I heard you and I realized I fucked up yeah. and I just want to see where it goes. So, uh, you know, uh, a listener out there who's going to be very excited for any of the to start as well. We got two Gregs who are on the edge of their seat. December revising the myth returns. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay. So yeah, obviously we, you know, we've got more ahead, but I'm, I, I, I've still got the, the, uh, chill, up my spine from that beginning of a mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. Yeah. In part, the jungle, man. Like what, what are we going to hear? What happens next? I mean, part two coming up. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Uh, what do you think is going to happen to old Michael? You know, or well, what do you think did happen to him? We, only we've, good things? I think. I mean, we've established that he mm-hmm. is the villain uh of the story so <laughs> oh, i did that by just naming them <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah exactly and if this is a story about you know a, a a rich capitalist scion villain i can only assume as munya said only good things happen to him 
I, I am struck by, you know, one thought, which is that, you know, if I'm part of a culture that has this, you know, insistence on blood for blood that just has to be exacted every time somebody dies, uh, this is going to get to be kind of an annoying pain in the ass. Uh, <laughs> a lot of the time, like sometimes it's going to be exactly what you need and want to uh, to further a political end, you know, against your uh, rival neighbors or internally. Uh, it's going to motivate something. A lot of the times it's going to be this thing you have to go through to hold society together, you know, and it just seems really convenient for this one tribe that when someone has died, someone from outside the local politics <laughs> has entered the scene. <laughs> and I know what I would be thinking. <laughs> I mean, some answers are just right in front of you. <laughs> no. uh, if, oh, but, but it's like in America living around La, La Cosa Nostra, the mob, mm -hmm. right? For the most part, yeah, they're out there committing crimes, murdering each other, but it's got nothing to do with the average Joe, with you or me, even if we live in some, you know, place like uh, Newark or Can Kansas City, you know? Mm. Until you involve yourself. <laughs> Until you involve yourself. That's when that's when it changes. Okay. Anyway, that that's my thinking. That, that's what's going through my head. Well, we'll have to stay tuned to find out, all right, as the mystery picks up again later. Yes, indeed. And I can't wait. You know, Thanksgiving is about bringing friends and family together. Brian, I hear the Gates Foundation is back in the news. <laughs> That's right, Greg. Uh, speaking of uh, rich Americans going to places they don't fucking belong. Uh, back in September, I was shocked walking into my local QFC uh, not by the guy wearing the uh, full bulletproof vest uh, with the handgun who now sits in the fucking entrance of our QFC, but by the Seattle Times headline on the front page, Gates-funded green revolution in Africa has failed. Whoa. And you know me, I just had to read that. So I immediately went home, got an ad blocker installed on my <laughs> computer and <laughs> broke through the paywall of the Seattle Times to read the article. You didn't swipe it right from out from under the uh, the armed guard. Even he is like, just take it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is big. I mean, you got to figure there's probably historically as many people around the world, as many outlets have you know, wanted to go out of the way to kiss Bill Gates' ass. I mean, it, Seattle Times has got to be at the top of the fucking list. Well, I will say there's a lot that's interesting in the article, but maybe the funniest part of the article is that at the very bottom of it, they have to disclaim that they receive funding from the Gates Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you know, again, a thing that, yeah, probably as media institutions go, Seattle Times has probably gotten a lot, but... So is everybody. It's very else. common. They yeah. actually fund a lot of newspapers. Everybody. Something to think about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, let me read you. This is just the uh, first few paragraphs here to kind of set up uh, the story. All right. So this is from the Seattle Times article. Gates funded Green Revolution Africa has failed. When philanthropists spend vast sums of money on a project, jubilation and high expectations ensue. But money doesn't necessarily produce results. 
A case study, according to critics, is the push for a green revolution in Africa, which has spent $1 billion to date, much of it from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. As an annual African farming summit takes place this week in Rwanda, activists, farmers, and faith leaders from Seattle to Nairobi are calling on the Gates Foundation and other funders to stop supporting an effort they say has failed to deliver on promises to radically reduce hunger and increase farmer productivity and income. Worse, critics say the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, or AGRA, founded in 2006 with money from the Gates and Rockefeller Foundations, has promoted an industrial model of agriculture that poisons soils with chemicals and encourages farmers to go into debt by buying expensive seeds, fertilizers, and pesticides. As a result of that debt, some farmers have had to sell their land or household goods like stoves and TVs, said Celestine Otieno and Anne Mena, both active with organizations in Kenya and advocating for ecologically friendly practices. Quote, I think it's the second phase of colonization, Otieno said. Wow. Damn. Uh, I mean. Well, that money from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, bought them this article. So, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, you need a limited hangout once in a while to maintain your credibility. So, I I, I think um, it's cool that they've uh, chosen uh, Africa as the limited hangout of the the Gates Foundation failures, because who really cares? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, you know, Africa is an interesting choice, and uh, I think it comes down to this concept of a green revolution, right? So uh, they mentioned that the Gates Foundation, along with the Rockefeller, Rockefeller Foundation, <laughs> created an organization called the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, also known as AGRA. The implication here being, let's finally do in Africa what the rest of the world uh, did in the middle of the last century. And very specifically, what India did. Yeah. All right. So, you know, we should probably discuss a little bit about India's green revolution. Uh, <clears throat> it is beloved by the I fucking love science crowd, uh, treated as a you know holy event on the planet. Uh, in India, let's just say has a little more criticism. Um, But uh, first, it's important to understand why India was in the state it was in the middle of the 20th century, which in short is uh, British colonialism destroyed Indian society. Top to bottom. Yeah. Once once, uh, one of the wealthiest and most developed places uh, in the world, the Angloids came and stole it all. (laughs) A A bunch of Scottish people came and murdered enough people that uh, society actually collapsed. That's the real that's the real key to conquest, actually, and theft is just actually destroy society root and branch. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of on top of the wreckage of the society, they built a new agricultural system uh, based on market incentives and cash crops. So obviously things were great from there on out. JK, uh, India had a long running series, about 150 years of pretty unimaginable fucking famines. Uh, there was the great Bengal famine of 1770, which killed somewhere in the range of seven to 10 million people. Hard to say the British weren't exactly keeping records. Uh, the great famine of 1876, which killed another six to 10 million people. I think the, the Raj's numbers are, uh, seven people. 
<laughs> well, they're talking about two British soldiers who like fell off a train uh, trying to shoot at Indians uh, who are trying to get to the grain shipment on the train. You know? <laughs> they're like, well, that's, those are two victims of the famine we got right there. <laughs> um, there was, of course, the Indian famine of 1896, not to be outdone by the Indian famine of 1899, <laughs> uh, combining for somewhere in the two to five million range. The Bengal famine of 1943, another two to four million. Uh, famine was just a thing that happened in India after British takeover. Yeah. And if, if you would like to be, you know, convinced of the, uh, colonial, political and colonial nature of these famines and just like get all the quotes of disgusting Scottish people, uh, murderously sacrificing, uh, in the Indian people on the altar of markets, uh, not even, not even really British, uh, chauvinism, just markets, uh, uh, Mike Davis's uh, late Victorian Holocaust uh, has has the fucking goods. Yes, the late Mike Davis, R.I.P., but excellent book. Mandatory. <laughs> yeah, Greg got it to me for my birthday, too. So I'm like really excited to read it. Thanks, Greg. A perfect yeah. birthday gift. Uh, I had it on my mind because of uh, uh, gaming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted the manual. It's the manual for how to play as the Raj uh, in Victoria 3. <laughs> Well, so Greg can now follow that up with uh, Irish historian Tim Pat Coogan's book, The Famine Plot, which is just <laughs> about the, the yeah, which is just about the Irish potato famine, but all the same great quotes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. British can't be defeated, you know, just <laughs> the fucking monsters of history. Uh, well, <clears throat> after, you know, nominal independence, at least uh, the Indian government in the 1960s was like, hey. What if we had an agricultural system uh, that didn't result in like 5 million people dying every 10 years? What if we had a system where uh, we actually, in this massive country that was one of the most advanced countries on the planet 200 years ago, uh, what if we could actually feed ourselves? So naturally, they looked to the United States for aid. <laughs> uh, oh. They then embarked on what during the 1960s came to be known as the Green Revolution, which was an effort to revolutionize Indian farming through the use of modern uh, industrialized farming techniques, mainly the heavy use of fertilizers, pesticides, and mechanization. Now, the key thing to understand here is support from local farmers was uh, garnered by the government by doing something crazy. That's uh, providing government aid, uh, creating price stabilization programs, mm. Uh, providing a basic income and basic income supports for families uh, in the countryside. Crazy, I know. <laughs> but things that were literally illegal under the Raj. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And are illegal again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, so the Green Revolution itself, you know, did lead to uh, increases in crops, right? So the crop yields did go up. Uh, it focused on a lot of modified disease-resistant forms of wheat and cotton, uh, of course, with patents controlled by American industries, but we'll come back. Uh, now, the problem is with the Green Revolution and its celebration, which is that it wasn't all bad. It did, you know, increase the, you know, food supply of India. But it also, you know, it's not all good, guys, either. Uh, so beginning in 1973, let me read you this bit from uh, this is the first paragraph of a New York Times article from 1973. Quote, 
The Green Revolution, launched seven years ago with great hope for vanquishing hunger, is sputtering along as little more than a minor revolt as Asia, overpopulated and undernourished, continues the struggle to feed itself. The Green Revolution, launched seven years ago with great hope for vanquishing hunger, is sputtering along as little more than a minor revolt as Asia, overpopulated and undernourished, continues the struggle to feed itself. So the issue was that uh, even after the effort to modernize farming in India, there were food shortages in India as early as 1972, popping back up again. And Bangladesh, there was again another major famine that probably killed several million people in the mid-70s. Uh, so while it delivered on some promises, maybe it was not the panacea that they had hoped for. At the same time, it had some unanticipated side effects, and you can probably put an unanticipated in quotes at this point, but Mm -hmm. some side effects. One is that agriculture became much more capital intensive, uh, so its output increased, so did farmers' debts. Uh, This wouldn't be a problem so long as uh, output continued to increase, right? So this this is the classic uh, debt issue, right? You like. You can keep raising the debt level just so long as, you know, uh, the the total uh, production never goes down. Right. There's it's, an assumption of c- continuous and never ending growth to yeah. debt. Yeah. And uh, the problem being that the fertilizer and pesticide heavy method of production then began to acidify the soil in many regions of India, reducing crop yields and making farmers more susceptible to drought. Just store that one in your brain for later. There's also, you know, like you said, this this is beloved by the the I really love science crowd. And I mean, just Greg doesn't want to use swears um, <laughs> based, you know, just on this, like when markets get any any tiny win, like it's all you'll hear about forever. Right. Because they did like on this basic level, increase uh, agricultural productivity by by doing this farming modernization. You're getting like at least for a few years when 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 everyone was paying attention you, you're getting uh more corn or whatever the fuck out of an acre uh, of land the the thing is that like wouldn't have saved anyone in all those famines in the under the raj in the 19th century because you know without going into to it all like even then there was there was enough grain to feed everybody in uh india and there always was um there were years because of droughts because of um unpredictable you know uh fluctuations in the climate where there might have been lean years in some places on the subcontinent or lean years overall where you know it might not have been a feast but everyone could have eaten and like millions need not die and so here as they're doing this they're also like the indian government the sort of Nehru government like is also like you said brian doing some economic things that um sort of are entangled with this the base oh we just did some science and put some more capital into the soil you know um that that make it more complicated but it's it's those things that probably prevent the bit like actual like famines from killing millions of people at least in india itself um because they're actually just doing price controls which is the thing that like you know the raj wouldn't do uh, mm-hmm. because of devotion to markets uh yeah, Greg, I mean, this issue of government support and things like that in the state's role in agriculture is going to come back. <laughs> um, now, I think in sort of assigning, you know, blame or whatever, you know, to, you know, 
was Nehru's government like foolish for pursuing this or whatever. I think they were making a choice based on the information that they had that made sense. I think trusting the United States is always the cardinal mistake in every international interaction. But past that idea of like, we have to modernize agriculture, it makes sense. That's why I say like unanticipated side effects. I think unanticipated for some people, maybe more anticipated for others. Uh, One of those unanticipated side effects being the increased cost of production leading to a focus on cash crops like uh, cotton, which leave farmers without food during drought years and Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, You know, it also leads to the development of things like monoculture, uh, you know, uh, agricultural development, right? We're only growing one crop and one variety of that crop over huge swaths of land, which makes you more susceptible to things like pests and disease, which, of course, makes you more reliant on things like pesticides and fertilizers. So you create a sort of cycle of purchasing, you know, uh, these high, you know, you you essentially take what was the world's least capital intensive industry, (laughs) which is agriculture, and have made it extremely capital intensive. Uh, which then creates a debt issue in the countryside. Don't worry, that never comes back to bite governments Mm. in the ass. (laughs) Now, (laughs) historically in Asia, you know, high debt in the countryside has always been good for the stability of governments. Um, Now, in the decades following the Green Revolution, uh, India pursued a neoliberal course, right, regarding economic policy that slowly, piece by piece, removed all that state aid to farmers. Mm. And as water subsidies and income supports disappeared, they were replaced by debt, leading to predictable problems like a dramatic rise in farmer bankruptcies and suicides, right? So as uh, the supports, like India had a national seed bank that was essentially subsidized seed that the farmers could use, as that disappeared, well, the farmers went into debt to buy their seed, right? As the water support disappeared, meaning the funding that was given to subsidize water supplies important for agriculture disappeared, they just went into debt. Everything got replaced by debt. So basically, right back to the situation under the Raj. Yes. You have this brief respite, <laughs> this brief, like, everyone knows all the, like, the uh, sort of Indian intellectual class has by the time of independence like really understands like what the british had done on the subcontinent and like we're able to come in and like do all these basic things like just basic like take control of an economy (laughs) yeah and then somehow yeah somehow (laughs) that that go somehow they, they for what 20 years you know and then then that starts eroding away incredible yeah yeah, it starts to run away basically in the 70s. Uh, stay tuned to ending the myth for maybe some reasons why that's mm-hmm. happening. Now, uh, I mean, one of the sort of more horrific stories or horrific ironies of the situation is in the 90s, a common practice, uh, they were really hit hard with drought and things in the 90s. A lot of farmers lost everything in India. It was a real agricultural crisis. And uh, one of the sort of grim ironies of the situation was a lot of farmers would take out one last loan, go buy some pesticide, and then just drink it to kill themselves. Oh, uh, fuck, Which dude. is, you know, yeah, bleak. Uh, this happened to thousands and thousands of people. Um, not great. Now, 
the sort of adoption of neoliberal policies, this debt cycle led to a lot of less predictable issues like over-reliance on cotton crops, even as food crops fetched a higher price on international markets. And uh, let me just give you an explanation for that, because that might seem strange, right? Uh, I'm going into debt. I should grow the thing that makes the most money. Um, that's certainly what the farmer would want to do. But uh, the journalist Christian Perini, he explains the seeming contradiction, quote, the money lenders demand that cotton be planted with their capital because cotton is inedible. So during times of crisis, producers cannot steal, that is, eat it. Money lenders essentially give advance on crops, then receive the harvest. If a farm family is dying of hunger and their crop is grain, chances are they will eat the collateral, cr- eat the collateral crop to stay alive rather than give it to the money lender. Cotton avoids that problem. Thus, even when food crops like grains command higher prices, they carry greater risks for the money lenders. Cotton is the money lenders' biological insurance. They steer farmers away from food crops, even if the potential for profits is higher. So you can't get a loan to grow something you could subsist off. Why do I just have this very clear image of the the class, both on the subcontinent and internationally, uh, that made these rules, that, that govern these incentives, that made these farmers plant cotton? being made to eat it until they die, (laughs) you know, just stuffing it down their throats until they uh, keel over and expire. Yeah. Crowds, cheering crowds. If we got any Naxalite members in the audience, uh, you know, free idea there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just put it, put it in the old memory bank. Um, Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing too is there was a lot uh, made by uh, dorks uh, at the New York times and things like that. I tried to remember what the, the Epstein guy is who this was his whole thing for a while, but about how capitalism, everybody's life is getting better all the time. Right. And one of the things that always cite is, well, you know, even though wages are very low still for like huge parts of the planet, they have gone up consistently for mm-hmm. 20 years. And the thing they always leave out of that is what they're actually looking at is the process of proletarianization taking place all over the planet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Meaning the countryside is getting enclosed and people are being forced into the cities. Right. So and to deduct from those rising wages subsistence that yes. isn't being calculated in that from agri- from subsistence agricultural life and add to it the cost of debt and the, the rising cost of living. You know. Yeah. And so even in very poor agricultural societies, right, where the majority of the population is doing agriculture, if there was an economic crisis or something like that, they could always eat their crops. Right. You know, so there was a sort of minor, you know, even, you know, still flimsy, but minor built in safety net for families. And what's interesting is, is the way that the Green Revolution came together with neoliberalism, with imperialism, things like that is that it actually took that away from the agricultural side, uh, from like the countryside of India, right? And at the same time, also, the other thing that this is the big lie, you know, of neoliberalism, it takes that away from them, from the farmer, but also what existed before the British came into India and was sort of rebuilt for a little on a small way is also communal safety nets, including just of like, grain storage you know for like systems that were paid for communally for uh moving grain around in emergency storing it in case things go wrong uh building and maintaining um uh water infrastructure you know irrigation and stuff like that that is taken 
that also these shitheads don't calculate and we're like, oh, your wages are going up, but your your social the, the society around you that you were actually living on is going away and you're getting this this little bit of a wage in return. Let the word proletarianization. Yeah. 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 Now, uh, listeners of Ending the Myth who enjoyed the episode on the Great Depression will be familiar with this story. Farmers began to enter into a bit of a death cycle. As farmers' debts grew, they worked the land more intensely. As they worked the land more intensely, they pulled more nutrients out of the soil. As they pulled more nutrients out of the soil, the land became less productive. As the land became less productive, they farmed it more intensely. And so on and so on. So in effect, the farmers were not engaged in agriculture. They were engaged in strip mining. Mm. Now, Sounds pretty familiar to what happened in the U.S. too during the Great Depression and like a little bit before that as well. And Munia, do you remember what was required to stop that in the Great Depression? <laughs> um, was it <laughs> a mass, um, you know, working class like uprising and the, you know, government essentially uh, stepping in? Yeah, massive state intervention for fear of uprising <laughs> eventually <laughs> ended that. And the reason why you don't have this problem at, you know, as much in the United States, because you'd say this is the same type of agriculture the United States does. Uh, there's some climate reasons for that that we'll get to. But the main reason is U.S. agriculture is heavily subsidized and designed uh, in a way, the subsidies are designed in a way to prevent this from happening. Uh, that is not the way uh, the U.S. has encouraged other countries to develop their agricultural sector. Now, uh, the problem with strip mining the soil, of course, uh, comes when the climate, let's say, becomes less predictable. So your soil is now much more vulnerable to drought. Uh, luckily, that's happening more and more. Uh, at the same time, when it rains, the rains are coming more violently and more all at once, which is washing away huge sections of soil in regions in India as well which is a problem if you're a farmer, <laughs> you know, washing away all your topsoil, not the best solution. So one gauge of the scale of the sort of disaster that's now been unfolding in India for about 30 years uh, is the spread of the Maoist Nax Naxalite movement. All right. And so the Naxalists are gorillas that have been in the Indian countryside since the 1960s. Uh, they were fairly marginalized for a long time. Uh, they have been largely contained, not a big following. Now they're back, baby. <laughs> the <laughs> 1990s saw the growth of exactly one communist movement on the planet. <laughs> and that was the Malice Naxalites of India. And God bless them. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, if you follow the patterns of drought across India... What you see is the growth of the Naxalite movement as well. Um, the, now, the issue is that has led to the Indian government launching extremely violent counterinsurgency campaigns in the Indian countryside. Uh, this violence then fuels you know, the growth of the Naxalite movement in the countryside, uh, but it also empowers the right wing in the core of India, right? So... Part of the story of the rise of guys like Modi and stuff like that is this counterinsurgency they've been fighting in the Indian countryside and the need to, you know, be more militant, be more right wing, be more uh, ethnically provocative, or I guess you just say racist, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 
And that is sort of, which is also, by the way, empowering their move towards neoliberalism, right? You might say they're in a death, <laughs> a death cycle, right? A death spiral. Now, journalist Christian Parenti, again, he describes this as the catastrophic convergence, all right? And I just want to give you a quick sort of description that he gives of the catastrophic convergence, because I think this is going to come back in when we talk about Africa here in just a second. Quote, in much of the world, it seems that the only solidarity forthcoming in response to climate change is an, ex- is an exclusionary tribalism, and the only state policy available is police repression. This is not natural and inevitable, but rather the result of a history, particularly the history of the global north's use and abuse of the global south, that has destroyed the institutions and social practices that would allow for a different, more productive response. The Cold War sowed instability throughout the Third World. Its myriad proxy wars left a legacy of armed groups, cheap weapons, smuggling networks, and corrupted officialdoms in developing countries. Neoliberal economic policies, radical privatization and economic deregulation enforced by the International Monetary Fund and World Bank, have pushed many economies in the Third World into permanent crisis and extreme inequality. In these societies, the state has often been reduced to a hollow shell, devoid of the institutional capacity it needs to guide economic development or address social crises. Climate change now joins these crises, acting as an accelerant. These problems compound and amplify each other, each expressing itself in the other. And so you get what the problem is in India, right? You know, and why uh, they seem to not be able to find any sort of way out in the current end of history. Now we come to Africa. (laughs) All right. So when the Rockefeller and Gates foundations began investing in African agriculture in the early 2000s, they were clear that what they wanted to do was recreate the green revolution in Africa, eventually forming the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa or AGRA. Now, at first, it might seem that this was, you know, the obvious playbook since the green revolution, you know, is treated as like, sacrosanct by the I fucking love science crowd and you know who are the Gates Foundation other than these nerds but I think if we dive a little deeper in there we might find that there's some uh, more a little less selfless motives involved in the Gates Foundation's funding of this did did they want to draw a parallel to the green revolution in India because it seems like to me just from our you know expose of what happened it seems like with the benefit of hindsight that was not um a success like it didn't really pan out like how how do you exactly spin that to the i fucking love science crowd when you can clearly see that the green revolution was not all it was cracked up to be well one key thing you'll find with your science friends on uh facebook or whatever if you were to go into the i fucking love science crowd on facebook is uh they don't know a lot about the world yeah (laughs) So that's that's step one. Well, the, <laughs> you got to put this in a context, and you then see it through the lens of ideology. The context mm-hmm. is anything, <clears throat> anything is an improvement over the British Raj. Yeah, before before independence, and then even the Green Revolution, neoliberal period, like millions upon millions of people died over this like hundred year period in India, like even like really the, the last like uh, 
uh, 50 years of the, the 19th century, like just unimaginable carnage that the entire world was aware of. This is what India was in everybody's mind was this desperately starving place. Like everyone was starving all the time. And then when one little like uh, shift in the weather happened, um, millions of people dropped like flies. So if you can sit around and make any improvement to that, like you you already look like you're winning. Okay. And then add to that the ideology, which is that, you know, you're with this, the neoliberal program and the green revolution, you're causing uh, people to be poor and proletarianized, but not die in these giant waves of starvation. And when people are dying, you can more sort of you've got a whole new ideology to um, pin it on the market. It's just like it's just what what's happening on the edges of uh, the market. You know, when these farmers like kill themselves, like that's that's just not something you care about in neoliberal ideology. You know, it's like, yeah, well, some, there's winners and losers. You know, what are you going to do? Like, we're, we're getting better all the time, you know? Yeah. What I think, too, you know, when we say this wasn't a success or, you know, had these problems. Again, you know, success or failure is always a question of perspective. Indeed. Uh, American agribusiness has sold an awful lot of product to India. Huge market win. So in that sense, it was a huge success. The other thing is the sort of infusion of capital that came through both uh, the arrival of American agribusiness, but also the uh, the lending and stuff that was done to purchase these products, that infusion of capital has been part of what's fueled sort of the urban development of India as well, which is also seen as a success. The victims of this whole situation all live in the countryside, mm-hmm. a place that uh, the news isn't hanging out in, mm. uh, a place that you're not going to hear too much about and all that kind of stuff. And again, it's one of those things where because the victims are dying quietly off screen, uh, they're conveniently ignored. And then if you bring them up, of course, ideology does the work of saying, well, yeah, but that's just a sacrifice you got to make. Right? And again, when you're starting from mass Holocaust, yeah. that is it's the perfect foundation to build the ultimate neoliberal progressive myth, which is of forward progress. Right. Yeah. Like as long as right. you, right. Sort of, you can right. say in some way you're doing better and w- at whatever moment you can sort of amortize the deaths over whatever time scale you want so that it's moving in the right direction you know because you can always do that because if you go back to the 19th century in india you are moving in the right you have succeeded like yeah so uh yeah it's impossible to mismanage it worse than the raj yeah like it's not it's you would have to you couldn't kill as many people in death camps like the nazis as as the british managed to do just by uh, refusing to set price controls on grain. Yeah. It, it's not, it would not be physically possible. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a real accomplishment. Like, there's a reason why RRR was like the highest selling movie this year. People <laughs> cheering every mm-hmm. time a British guy gets yeah, hanged. Yeah. Dead. I still got to see that. I still got to see that. <laughs> I do too. It's great. And I, I need to see like the, um, don't they have like the um, original version and then they have like a Punjabi dub, I think, like yeah, on Netflix. I think the, the Hindi dub is on Netflix. Hindi, but it's a, yeah. yeah, it's original uh, uh, filming is in a different language, which I'm not familiar enough with the Indian language families to pronounce correctly or anything. But uh, yeah, so but they don't have it on Netflix. Blame. Anyways. Weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so bringing this back, right. Um, kind of getting this idea of like 
maybe what some of the more selfless motive, or I guess less selfless motives were of the Gates Foundation. Uh, there was this weird thing that happened, right? So this organization was formed in 2006, right? We've had the Green Revolution swept the rest of the world. Africa's the last place, right? Uh, since 2006, a weird thing happened. Global food prices started rising at a very dramatic rate. Now, the rise is tied to a few factors. One is reduced, per, uh, reduced production caused by drought and other environmental crises. I uh, wonder what could be causing that. The other reason is rising oil prices. So, you know, if it wasn't clear already, all these inputs uh, that fueled the Green Revolution are petroleum. Like, yeah. just different varieties of petroleum that you're just shoving into the fucking earth, right? This is why I paid $11 a pound for lightly grilled green beans at the PCC uh, deli the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the other reason is speculation. All right? So, speculation in commodities markets used to be uh, highly regulated. All right? One of the things in the United States in particular was they had a thing called position limits. Uh, so in a day, you had a limit on how much of a particular commodity you could train or trade. Sorry. Uh, in 1991, Goldman Sachs went to the federal government and negotiated an exception to their position limit and then created a new financial instrument called the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. Okay? With the creation of this, all the other financial institutions, of course, went to the federal government and said, we should have our position limits removed when negotiating on commodities markets. All those restraints were released. And now you could freely trade on all commodities markets without any sort of government intervention or them having to sign off on you. So slowly, a step at a time, moving the entire global food market and system back to something closer to the British Raj in India in the 19th century. <laughs> Not necessarily all the way there yet, but but that's that's where we're going. Building a bridge back to the Raj, baby. Um, now, the problem with speculation in commodities markets, you might say, is, oh, it's like, oh, we're just speculating on futures. What does it matter? Uh, that actually affects food prices on the ground. <laughs> so... Uh, Jean Ziegler, the special rapporteur on the right for food uh, for the UN from 2000 to 2008, he noted, quote, we have a herd of market traders, speculators and financial bandits who have turned wild and constructed a world of inequality and horror. We have to put a stop to this. Uh, Jean is a Swiss banker. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Damn. It's <laughs> um, like, <laughs> a guy, when a guy like standing over a table stacked with Nazi gold is telling you like we got to rein in these other bankers, yeah. yeah, he basically financed his house with like gold fillings, yeah, and he's like, <laughs> I think you guys are getting excessive out there. Holy shit! So the question is, what you know, what what who cares? Like, what what what, has, what does that have to do with Seattle? What does this have to do with the Gates Foundation? Well, the connection between the Gates Foundation and the financial sector is uh, intense. Mm. All right. Warren Buffett, right, of course, is famously a financier. Uh, he also is one of the largest shareholders in Goldman Sachs via Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, he's the fifth largest shareholder in Goldman Sachs. 
the Gate Foundation itself is a revol- revolving door with Goldman Sachs. Uh, this is a funny story. When Bill Gates was being criticized very heavily for his international programs, that they were all opaque and nobody had any input on them, he decided, well, that's okay. I'll create an advisory board in 2007. Have you heard this one before? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so he created the Global Development Advisory Board. Uh, he put this guy, Raja Gupta, in charge. And uh, friends, uh, friends and fans of financial crimes uh, will remember this guy. He was on the board of directors at Goldman Sachs. He also was convicted in 2012 of insider trading and security frauds in the Galleon scandal. So that's a fun one to look up. (laughs) Uh, He eventually had to step down from the Gates Foundation uh, after that. Now, the the so one the Gates Foundation has some weird connections to uh, people very interested in commodities. You speculating on food commodities, right? That's one issue. Uh, another issue in the increase of food uh, food prices uh, is that it's very petroleum intensive. Now, during the 90s, drought conditions were offset by a rapid decline in oil prices caused by a flood of Saudi, Iraqi, and Russian oil into the market. But with the second invasion of Iraq by the United States in 2003, oil prices began to increase. All right. Now, this, of course, increased the prices of fertilizers, pesticides, etc. Now, market share for the fertilizer and pesticide conglomerates based in the United States and in Europe was absorbed by peasant debt in South Asia and Latin America, but new markets were needed. And no continent on Earth uses less fertilizer and pesticide than Africa. Now, it was an untapped market, and as a story in Politico notes, quote, Multinational fertilizer giants see sub-Saharan Africa as their last unconquered frontier, and Agra doesn't shy away from admitting that it's played a role in helping them gain a stronger foothold. Now, this is something that we talked about previously, uh, particularly we talked about the Gates Foundation's funding of uh, health studies and pharmaceutical studies in India and across Africa. Interesting, these places keep coming up. Mm. Uh, that one of the things they were doing was prying open markets for American pharma in these places. Uh, essentially, they're doing the same thing for American agribusiness via these this funding. Now, why would the Gates Foundation do this? Is it just a commitment to economic ideology? Uh, well, one potential reason is the foundation's close ties to CF Industries, the largest producer of fertilizer in the United States and the third largest in the world. Uh, In 2015, CF Industries purchased OCI, a Dutch fertilizer company, which the Gates Foundation also owned a considerable stake in. Alan Hoiberger uh, was placed in charge of the new conglomerate. Hoiberger, his previous job prior to that was overseeing Bill Gates' Microsoft investments and the entire investment portfolio of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, Yeah, just like, you know, peanuts, small, small, (laughs) small stakes. (laughs) And definitely... Just a guy. Look, the foundation has lots of employees, okay? <laughs> this, just this one of def- them, right? Yeah, this is definitely not a guy that Bill's probably fucking kids with on the weekend. So. <laughs> no, you were specifically not alleging that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I was being very, very clear. <laughs> no one was. He's definitely no. not doing that, is what you said. That's, yeah, that's yeah. not being alleged at all. Now, uh, 
the other issue is there was a you know a new player kind of came into the Af- in Africa's version of the Green Revolution, which was genetically modified seeds. And uh, the Gates Foundation all tied up in that too. In 2008, the Gates Foundation teamed up with Monsanto to establish the Water Efficient Maze for Africa project. Uh, the problem with these seeds, however, is that they're treated not as natural agricultural products that can be used or reused at the will of the farmer, but as pieces of intellectual property that farmers essentially rent on a subscription basis. So Monsanto effectively turned the last cheap input in the farming process into a capital-intensive product that farmers would naturally have to purchase on credit. So essentially, what they're doing is not creating markets for agriculture or not creating markets for farmed goods in Africa. What they're creating is turning Africa into a market for American agribusiness. Right. So it's a sleight of hand. And in an interesting way for uh, American intellectual property, which is something like, you know, it's not even ideological for Bill Gates. It's just like, or or even broadly class. It's like his own personal experience. He just has an affinity. You know, he gets, he gets making money off intellectual property. (laughs) He likes it. He sees Maybe he, whether he's, you know, maybe whether it's a, a false consciousness on his part or not, maybe he sees himself as the as a leader of the intellectual property class, uh, and it's and wants to uh, or it interests him to advance its prerogatives, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, again, I want to kind of give some of the input from people, you know, on the African continent itself, right? So this is a Ugandan position and politician. Uh, who I believe served as a health minister in Uganda for a while, but his name is Michael Lalume Bayega. He summarized the problem of Africa's Green Revolution, quote, the owners of these GMOs are whites in the U.S., Europe, and China who are looking for markets in Africa. They are creating markets and empowering themselves. Um, I think this is important because uh, sometimes critics of these policies, right, the Green Revolution or what the Gates Foundation did in Africa, are labeled as just anti-science. Like, they're like hippies, you yeah. know, crunchy granola types yeah. who are afraid of uh, frankencrops or whatever, and, you know, they're like, they're, they're the natives who are seeing, you know, a helicopter for the first time and are like, <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> you know, God's come to smite us, right? No, science! No! <laughs> and what's interesting is, uh, Sometime in the U- sometimes in the U.S., you, when you see this criticism of things like GMOs and stuff, it is wrapped in this sort of like weird, uh, like you know, new agey kind of shit. But interesting when you look anywhere in the third world at criticisms of this stuff, the issue of money, patents, debt comes up over and over and over again. Um, first issue you know it's always the first order it's about control imperialism it's about putting farmers in debt and i think the reason why the i fucking love science crowd doesn't like to engage that is uh all of that is historically true <laughs> like you can look at any case study that's exactly what has happened in all mm-hmm. these cases um now the question then becomes what does all this mean for africa right what does it mean for africans uh, you know, perhaps all of this market expansion is for the best uh, if it gets more food to more people on the African continent. 
Maybe you do, in fact, have to break a few eggs to make an omelet, as they say. Now, in 2020, Tufts University did a study of 13 different countries that Agro was operating in to see if Agro was meeting their stated goals. Now, it should be noted that the Gates Foundation uh, is very uh, tight-lipped about its actual data involving these programs. Uh, as in, they will not release it to anybody. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. <Yeah. laughs> a sign of, of uh, a rollicking success, I have to say. So Tufts had to go about, get the data from countries, the, from the countries themselves uh, and from other sources. But let me read you this summary of their study. Uh, this is what they found. Quote, little evidence of significant increases in the incomes or food security of small-scale food producers. On the contrary, in countries in which Agra operates, there has been a 30% increase in the number of people suffering hunger, a condition affecting 130 million people in the 13 Agra-focused countries. Little evidence that product- uh, productivity has increased by any significant amount. For staple crops as a whole, yields only rose by 18% on average in agri-countries in 12 years compared to 17% in the same period before agra. This is an average annual growth rate of 1.5%, which is similar to the time before agra. Moreover, the productivity growth declined in 8 out of 13 countries. In 3 countries, the figures have even shifted from positive to negative under agra. This is casting doubt about Agra as a factor for productivity growth. Even maize, heavily promoted by Green Revolution programs, showed just 29% yield growth, well short of Agra's goal of 100%. Minimal reduction in rural poverty or hunger, even where production of staple food increased, such as in Zambia, where maize production increased by more than 150%, mainly due to farmland increases. Small-scale food producers did not adequately benefit. Poverty and hunger remained staggeringly high. Further erosion of food security and nutrition for poor small-scale food producers, where Green Revolution incentives for priority crops drove land use towards maize and away from more nutritious and climate-resilient traditional crops like millet and sorghum. While seeds for traditional crops were formerly easy and cheap to get a hold of via farmer's exchange, the farmers now have to pay seeds uh, have to pay for seeds of priority crops. Strong evidence of negative environmental impacts, including acidification of soils under monoculture cultivation with fossil fuel-based synthetic fertilizers. Production increases have come from farmers bringing new land under cultivation. Both aspects negatively affect climate change, mitigation, and adaptation. So there's some key things here. Uh, one is that the growth in agricultural production in Africa has been minimal. Most importantly, it's just matched the growth pre the new green revolution in Africa. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't even repeat what happened in India. Um, the second issue is what growth they did see seems to be just new land coming under cultivation as opposed to getting more out of the land that already exists. Now, there's some reasons for that. One of the biggest ones is climate change. The land has gotten drier, which means that the use of fertilizer has gotten more intense, which means that the soil has gotten bad faster. <laughs> All right. 
now, other reasons for this just have to do with uh, Africa is a different place than India. Hard to believe. Hmm. <laughs> you know, hmm. the countries with Africa within Africa are different from one another. Despite the Gates Foundation, which apparently cannot differentiate between any of these places. They are places that have different traditions, different, you know, uh, farming techniques. They grow different things, different climates, even, uh, as well as the fact they have different economic, uh, you know, systems around their agricultural system as well. So just shoving this one size fits all answer on it didn't work. Well, when your answer is one size fits all, regardless, it sort of doesn't matter to you what the starting points are. You know, you're trying to get someone everyone to the same place you know now so that gives us a kind of question of you know why has agra failed in africa essentially and by the way when i say it failed uh the gates foundation is still going ahead with this so don't don't (laughs) think this stopping like this is this is continuing but uh you know why has it failed and i think one of the big reasons too that's missing from the indian you know equation here is the role of the state so when they did the Green Revolution in India, the state was still interventionist. It was still providing support for farmers and things like that to ease the transition from older methods of agriculture to this new method of agriculture. In Africa, that's not the case at all. Neoliberalism has already swept over all of these states. The supports are, for the most part, completely obliterated. Uh, African agriculture was already having trouble because they, you know, many states in Africa did provide support for farmers and have since gotten rid of it. So the, the, you know, the exit of the state from this means that debt has taken its place, which of course is just ravaging the very people who do the work of growing the food. Yeah. And by ravaging that workforce, they have not been able to increase the food supply. Yeah. 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 And I mean, what you're saying is in, in India, when they did the Green Revolution, it looked good because, like, what was actually happening was covered up by this period where, you know, because of independence, like, there was a political mandate to actually, like, intervene in the economy to set up supports and safety nets and controls that was probably was almost probably all the real gains of that period. And, and conveniently, the the neoliberal I fucking love science people get to say no it was all the fucking nitrogen we we pumped into the soil and if you want it better you actually need to do economic neoliberalism and get rid of all that stuff mm-hmm. yeah I mean it's just a big fucking con yeah and once like you're in the system of neoliberalism it's it's not it's not trivial to just you know revert right once like farmers are in debt right and like you know the state is weakened to that point like you know to rebuild that state especially under you know imperial pressures um that, that, that's something that is hard even if like you do have maybe you know leaders that are that that maybe would be inclined to do that not to say that mm-hmm. you know all leaders like necessarily are or not but um it is a very slippery slope to go down once they're already in it too. It's hard to snap back out of it once there's death spirals happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the problem is, is that, you know, as Pretty talks about with that catastrophic convergence, you know, these things aren't just layering on top of each other. They're amplifying one another. Right. Yeah. So each yeah. crisis, you know, makes the other crisis worse. And it, uh, 
doesn't feel good, man. <laughs> it's the only it's the only sort of thing you'd say. Now, uh, the other thing about the failure uh, with you know of Agra and Africa is again it comes back to the issue of perspective. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is it a failure? And the thing is, American agribusiness is shipping more <laughs> product to Africa than they were before. Mm-hmm. Arrow go up for CF Industries. Yeah. And so, so can he, we really call it a failure then? If if that if they're really like this whole thing, then seems like a PR thing in general, right? For what their real success metric is, is to open up markets within, mm-hmm. you know, new like basically expand, uh, you know, Western commerce uh, and industry into new uh, markets that previously were untapped. So it seems like they are are achieving that goal, right? Which is what where the neo colonialism. Um, critiques do come from right yeah and essentially uh by imposing this sort of system of agriculture on people they're choosing winners right so the gates foundation is coming in and through its funding is choosing winners in these communities and those winners now because they've been funded right because they came out on top and other people they didn't have to drink fertilizer like the other people they're now becoming dedicated to this model of intellectual property of you know you know basing your agricultural system on heavy input of American fertilizer and pesticide, right? They're becoming committed to that, you know? And you're essentially reshaping the political landscape as well. Now, the interesting thing that I have kind of left off to this point is reliance on some of these things, like a petroleum-based system of agricultural production, is potentially vulnerable uh, to the fact that, A, oil, you know, has a shelf life, right? You know, there's only so much in the ground, baby. Uh, but also, it's at the center of a lot of imperial conflict. Mm-hmm. Anybody want to take a guess what's happened to fertilizer prices in the last year? Hmm. Yeah, they're up 400%. Whoa. What? Um, in the last year? Yeah. Because one of the places that you get the oil for fertilizer and one of the places that produces a lot of fertilizer for Europe and things like that is a country called Russia. And uh, uh. it is, you know, due to American, uh, you know, sanctions, not able to ship as much of that out as it used to, and prices are up. So it's, you know, <laughs> CF Industries wins again. If you're a farmer in Africa, well, maybe you're going to have to drink the pesticide. It's It's not good. Now, the other thing is, I mean, part of the reason why this doesn't work, didn't work as well in Africa, too, is the issue of climate change. And, you know, this type of agriculture, it works in areas that already have very good soil, good climates for growing, and where people can rotate crops through fields and stuff like that. And a lot of places in India and Africa, which are, are you know, straddling the equator, uh, what was good soil is no longer. You know, what was good climate for growing isn't and increasingly so spreading out from that region. And it's one of those problems that's going to grow worse with time. And without the state to intervene, the response from farmers is going to be what it always is under capitalism, which is to farm more intensely, which, of course, will make the problem worse, uh, you know, in an endless cycle over and over and over again. And, uh, you know. Again, the people who are going to die from climate change are not in the United States. You know, 
are not in Western Europe. The people who are going to profit from it are, though. And yeah, it's it's grotesque. I guess that's all I can say. It's grotesque. Now, the question finally comes, and you know, maybe we'll leave on the leave on this is uh, who gets to decide how agricultural production should be arranged across the African continent. And in 2021, two members of the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa, or AFSA, wrote an editorial piece for Scientific American where they criticized the approach of the Gates Foundation. Quote, we welcome investment in agriculture on our continent, but we seek it in a form that is democratic and responsive to the people at the heart of agriculture, not as a top-down force that ends up concentrating power and profit into the hands of a small number of multinational companies. While describing how GM seeds and other technology would have solved hunger in Africa, Bill Gates claimed that, quote, it's a sovereign decision. No one makes that for them. But the massive resources of the Gates Foundation, which he co-chairs, have had an outsized influence on African scientists and policymakers, with the result that food systems on our continent are becoming ever more market-oriented and corporate-controlled. And... We talked about this before, but I think this is the heart of the problem in the Gates Foundation. Even if what they did was good, which it seems to roundly not be for the most part, but even if it was, rich people shouldn't have this much power. Yeah. 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 This this comes from, this isn't like what, just the critique of foundations at large is that it's just not a democratic institution, right? It's a rich person uh, influencing policy on a mass scale, um, you know, I, in a very charitable sense, just influencing policy. Right. But even like, you know, enforcing like their own beliefs. Right. Um, and opening like different markets up to like, you know, U.S. corporations like from that uh, with like zero input from the people who actually, you know, uh, live there. There's no it's not a d- democratic process. Right. Like why? Why is Bill Gates getting to decide, like, you know, health policy, right? Like, yeah, I yeah. Mean, <laughs> yeah, this one guy, this one computer scientist gets to fucking decide the international health policy. He gets to decide international, you know, agricultural policy. Yeah. You know, these are complicated things. <laughs> Even know? if you could assume that Bill Gates had the best interest of the people of Africa at heart, which uh, uh, you know, as we've discussed on this show before, uh, there's no reason to believe. Uh, yeah. Yeah, still, uh, this can't be allowed to happen in any kind of just world. Like, it's just, it's always going to end up like this. Well, Brian, uh, thank you for uh, treating us to that uh, update on our friend Bill and the new and exciting ways he's uh, taking out uh, whatever his neuroses are on the people of the African continent. Listeners at home, this might be a good time to take a stretch, take a break. Uh, treat this as a little intermission if you need to. Uh, and when we come back, we've got some advice on holiday entertaining that I think you'll all find very helpful. If there's one thing that we love, 
It's entertaining. That's right, Brian. Nothing is better than bringing friends and family together under one roof to share a full day of laughs and merriment. And boy, do we have a big one coming up. You got that right, Bran. Thanksgiving is right at the top of my holiday list. What's your favorite Thanksgiving dish, Vernon? Yams. Sweet potato yams. Oh, man, who doesn't love sweet potato yams? I can tell that you are already embracing the spirit of the holidays, and that is what we want to capture for our friends and family. But this kind of holiday magic doesn't just happen. It has to be carefully crafted by a skilled host. And that is why we are here today to help make sure that your holiday get-together is a hit. The first thing you want to do with any get-together is set a vibe. We are going to do that today by starting with a fun and easy holiday craft project. Start by placing your hand down on construction paper and using a pencil, trace the outline of your hand. On the outline of your thumb, add a beak, eyes, and a gobbler. Add a wing to the inside of the hand and two legs at the bottom of the palm. Use markers, colored pencils, or crayons to color in your turkey with festive colors. Make sure to leave enough blank space on the body so that you can write in your turkey's name. I'm naming mine Yammy Gobblestein. Cut a two-inch wide strip of construction paper to a length of 16 inches. Wrap the strip around your head and mark where the pieces meet. Use a glue stick to stick the headband together, then glue the turkey onto the headband. Have all of your guests make, name, and wear their turkeys. Wow, that sounds like fun for the whole family. It really brings the family together. Let's see mom try to ask dad for a divorce while wearing Mr. Beekman on her head. <laughs> I don't think that's happening. Nope, not happening. Well, after the crafts, our guests are going to be ready for something to eat. And I hear you have the perfect appetizer for the season. That's right. Nothing starts a holiday get-together off right like the perfect cheese ball. And perfection, my friends, takes time. So we need to make sure that we start the cheese ball the day before. First, fill a small pot with about one inch of neutral oil, like canola or vegetable. Heat the oil over medium-high heat until it reaches 350 degrees. Take six ounces of turkey skin and pat it dry with a paper towel before adding it to the oil. Once the skin is golden brown and delicious, remove it to a paper towel lined plate and season it with a pinch of salt. Once the turkey skin has cooled, break it up into small pieces, either with your hands or with a knife. Now we are ready to whip the cheese ball together. Add to your mixing bowl two cups of shredded smoked Gouda cheese, 16 ounces of cream cheese that has been brought to room temperature, one stick of butter, also at room temperature, two teaspoons of Worcestershire sauce, two tablespoons of milk, a quarter cup of chopped fresh parsley, one teaspoon of minced rosemary and thyme leaves, and salt and pepper to taste. Using your paddle attachment on your stand mixer, begin mixing the cheese to combine. As the cheese ball is mixing, sprinkle in your turkey skins. Once everything is good and mixed, roll the cheese into a ball, wrap it in plastic, and refrigerate overnight. The next morning, place three tablespoons of butter in a saucepan on medium heat. Once the butter is foaming, add two cups of chopped pecans and saute. Once the pecans start smelling nice and nutty, add a quarter teaspoon of cinnamon, a quarter teaspoon of cayenne, and a pinch of salt. 
saute for an additional one to two minutes before removing the nuts with a slotted spoon to a paper towel lined plate. Once the nuts have cooled, spread them over a large plate, remove your cheese ball from the fridge and roll it all over the nut mixture until it is completely covered. Return the cheese ball to the fridge until about 15 minutes before you're ready to serve. That sounds delicious. I know. Who doesn't love a cheese ball? And your uncle won't even be able to share his thoughts on black quarterbacks with his mouth stuffed full of cheese and crackers. You got that right. Now we have the hats. We have a cheese ball. This almost feels like the perfect holiday get together. But something feels like it's still missing. Like maybe you have an aspic size hole in your holiday plan? You read my mind. What are the holidays without a delicious holiday aspect? To make the perfect holiday aspect, we are going to need a bit of a head start. Two days before Thanksgiving, take five pounds of chicken feet and place them in a large stock pot with two and a half gallons of water. Bring the water to a boil and leave it on a high simmer for about six hours, adding more water as necessary to keep the chicken feet covered. After rendering the gelatin, remove the chicken feet from your stock pot and use a double layer of cheesecloth to strain any solid bits out of the remaining liquid. Place the liquid back into a clean pot and bring to a boil. Reduce the liquid to 1 16th its original volume, switching to smaller pots as necessary. Once the liquid has reduced, pour it into a mason jar and allow it to cool before refrigerating. On the day before Thanksgiving, combine 12 ounces of cranberries, two minced chipotle peppers, one tablespoon of adobo sauce, three tablespoons of orange juice, and one and one-third cups of sugar in a saucepan over medium heat. Stir until the sugar dissolves and the cranberries begin to pop, releasing their liquid. Add one clove of minced garlic, a half teaspoon of cinnamon, a half teaspoon of cumin, and a cup and a half of our reduced gelatin mixture to the saucepan and cook until the sauce begins to thicken. Pour the mixture into your favorite holiday aspect mold and refrigerate overnight. Mmm, mmm, mmm. With this cooking, there is no need for fireworks at the table. The explosion is going to be happening in my mouth. Only thing that's going to be broken after this Thanksgiving is your family's expectations as you wow them with the social event of the season. especially uh that sounds like a absolutely heartwarming holiday get together uh so thank you for that so i've been thinking you know uh in the spirit of experimentation testing out new ideas new forms and because with the help of nootropic supplements i'm retraining (laughs) myself to read (laughs) i i might try out a possibly recurring literary feature Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, we could, uh, from time to time, discuss our thoughts on contemporary works uh, that are relevant to the discourse. Uh, how's that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. You know, and also our listeners can't or won't read, so that helps them too. So it sounds win-win. So 
for our first crack uh, at this. I'm joined by Brian, who we've heard, and uh, our friend Justin, friend of the show, because they are both very familiar with the works of George R.R. R. Martin. Isn't that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, the man's oeuvre is wide and vast, uh, but certainly with the most famous part of it, which would be the Song of Ice and Fire series. Uh, yes. I will also add that I am a trained literati in that I have a humanities degree in literature, which has opened doors to me, such as allowing me to work a minimum wage job after I graduated college. <laughs> oh, well, that that is exactly the qualifications we're looking for. Justin, you've obviously read A Song of Ice and Fire. Would you call yourself a lore boy? I am indeed a lore boy. Um, you know, I wouldn't say I'm. I'm. You know, on on the the highest rung. Um, I have read all the books. I've been on. You know, the Song of Ice and Ice and Fire forums. Uh, I've read maybe not all the little like short stories and whatnot, but definitely like several of them. Okay. That fantastic. This is this is perfect. You guys are exactly who I need for this because I've taken the plunge into the world of ice and fire. And I would like to discuss with you my glacier cracking, stone melting, planetose shattering, and as far as I can tell, totally novel theories of what it all means. Uh -oh. Okay, first off, I mean Congrats on finishing Dance with Dragons. You know, everybody's gotten that far, Greg. But have you read the pre-release chapters of Winds of Winter? And how's that going to affect your theory? Oh, I've never read any of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So so I, I assume you just watched the show a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, during COVID, I watched the show. And then I recently watched uh, The Dragon Show, which I, I must take this opportunity to concede to you brian in the end was much better than the orc show the orc <laughs> show had promise in the, the first episode yeah and, and really just yeah never lived up to it um and you know i enjoyed it so much that i i i moved, took the next logical step and dove into the youtube lore videos <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that is a nice shortcut to reading yeah so you know I got I listened to some, you know, uh, videos on all the sort of the the history and the prophecies. And I came to some different conclusions than the people presenting the information. OK, <laughs> um, now, see, I, I feel like my mind hasn't been polluted with actually reading the books and learning all of that lore and prophecy in context. OK. You have a fresh perspective, That's, maybe. Yes, mm -hmm. I have a pure view of it all. And I want to, and importantly, I want to be on the record as correct when it turns out that I am I am right about this stuff. Uh, and I mean, what what is podcasting for if not that? <laughs> uh, and, you know, also, I, you know, I want to discuss my uh, my very true theories with my lore buddies and, you know, bounce them off. You see, see, uh, see what you guys think. You got you ready? Yeah. Okay. We'll see. All right. Now, uh, you know, just just uh, to set this up, you know, if you guys uh, 
respond with enough uh, praise, encouragement, affirmation, I might consent to cracking open uh, that first book after this. Okay. <laughs> but we got to be nice to you. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. All right. If you're really impressed with my theories. Okay. All right. Here goes. You ready? You ready to to learn the answer to all the biggest questions? Yeah. 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 Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Brian, Justin, the others, the White Walkers, are ancient aliens from a destroyed moon, survivors of an apocalypse perpetrated by humanity. The Wall, a manifestation of a truce in a war to finish the job, a pact never settled in a final treaty. The prince that was promised is not a prophecy, but an unfulfilled obligation. In the end, our heroes will make peace by standing trial and dying willingly, Christ-like, eating the sin of genocide. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a little out there. Um, It it sounds like a little bit more of maybe a, a Brandon Sanderson, you know, book. He likes to do, he's a Mormon and he likes to do these like, uh, you know, fantastic, you know, worlds with like aliens and uh, the fantasy kind of mixed in and like mm-hmm. shards that are sentient. Uh, it's, it's it's definitely one trope. That's sort of maybe, yeah, the highest level takeaway, right? Is, you know, oh, it's, if there's another planet involved, I'm saying. So you could say it's, you know, there's some science fiction-y elements. And I mean, that's certainly, that's like one trope in, in fantasy. I mean, some of my favorite uh the uh jack vance dying earth uh stories which which dungeons and dragons is literally based on is actually mm-hmm. like a story about earth like a hundred thousand years in the future and there's aliens and shit you know um but you know uh what well, do you guys think well what jumps to mind to me greg is elements of this uh sound an awful lot like last year best movie oscar snob moonfall a roland <laughs> yeah. emmerich instant classic that i encourage you to watch and as i recall if i yeah maybe i'm quoting you slightly uh wrong here uh thought fucking sucked and it's just interesting <laughs> that it seems like not only did they drill a base into the moon under the surface of the moon they might have drilled ideas into your head look i thought the movie sucked not that like uh secret uh cultures living on or in the moon was a dumb idea okay (laughs) so um well you know the thing is is the uh you know the magic that is behind the wall that's contained behind the wall in the game of thrones sort of canon is ancient you know uh yeah the the westerosi that you see below the wall you know the people that live furthest north are the oldest of the westerosi right that live there right but they're all like generally newcomers to the Mm -hmm. sort of continent um like men you know traveled to westeros all right they didn't like start there or anything like that and so i mean you know there is something there i mean maybe uh there's an ancient history beyond the wall that we just don't know about that could contain this esoteric technology and uh you know and knowledge uh and that's part of what they're afraid of you know about going out there yeah i mean 
you know, does this, do you guys buy this? Are you intrigued no. by this? To, oh, no. Oh, so you have. <laughs> no, well, because we've read the books. We know <laughs> that we know how the others, or the White yeah. Walkers are created. Like oh, okay. Kinda... Oh, oh, please enlighten me. <laughs> well, Greg, in the early 90s in Scandinavia, there was this uh, burgeoning scene that opened up that was uh, this new mu- type of music called black metal or blackened mm-hmm. metal, as they sometimes <laughs> call it. Uh, and that created the others. Yeah, yeah. Playing yeah. it in loud volumes tor- pointed toward the north. Yeah, the uh, White Walkers are created uh, when the first humans in Westeros uh, come into contact and into battle with the children of the forest. And uh, in an effort to both smite the men, but also the sort of black magic that exists in the north, the children of the forest create the first uh, White Walker. Uh, yeah. The it's Night the King, trope. as he's called. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, and then the White Walkers, you know, I guess you're supposed to assume have like, along with the humans, have largely eradicated the children of the forest, who are the first inhabitants of Westeros. Yeah, okay, that's bullshit. (laughs) That's just (laughs) they want you to think. That's maybe that's not canon. Did George that's, write that? I don't know. Now I'm questioning myself. What was no, the show and what was I'm, the book? I'm telling you that <laughs> that is bullshit. First of all, okay, so I did, I have watched the lore videos, okay? And so I I have watched people telling me like, okay, what was from the show and what you don't actually know, what hasn't happened yet in the book, what has been revealed. But it is nonetheless the consensus among the lore people online that, yeah, it's not going to be exactly how it was, but yeah, pretty much probably the Children of the Forest created the, um, the others, okay? Yep. Let me back up. Let me explain how I get to this point, okay? And not just in terms of an interpretation of the lore. So first of all, like my first impression, seeing the first season of the show, it's very, like the first thing that struck me, the thing that actually interested me, like, oh, I might keep watching this. <clears throat> there might actually be an, uh, an, a, a fun sort of literary project going on here is how Martin keeps introducing these unlikely heroes, these people very specifically singled out as not the heroes of a story who are clearly all going to come together and be the heroes of a story. Okay, great. And then also watching the first few seasons, I I began to remember when I first had heard about the books and talking to people who were reading them in like the, in like the two thousands, not as far back as the nineties. As far as I remember in the two thousands. That's when I read them. Yeah. And the, The thing that was in the air when you talk to people, what was going around is that there are these, um, I rem- I have this phrase, like a guy trying to explain it to me and he's like, it literally is a game of thrones. It's <laughs> 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 a guy I worked with at the time and um, <laughs> this uh, real nerd. Um, and the, the, the thing that was in the air was that this is this like, uh, the take on fantasy was this, Machiavellian utilitarian uh epic of like people you know just getting through the world the way it really is and if you're going to get ahead or even sometime if you're going to do the right thing or you know just do what needs to be done sometimes that means making the hard decisions uh, sometimes that's about people's lives some that time sometimes that means you know real questions about what ends justify what means and shit and that's kind of what I would always had in the back of my mind about it. And watching the um, first few seasons of the show, which are, you know, apparently Hugh pretty closely pared down, but to the books and what I yeah. was imagining was being set up, the way I was looking at those characters, the way I was setting them up. My thought was, oh, I bet that's actually not what this is about. I bet that's a trap set by George R. R. Martin, because what I see 
him doing is also setting up other kinds of reversals and that being one of them that this isn't a utilitarian screed you know that would put it kind of in the in the realm of like you know ayn rand you know like Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that um it's a it's actually the opposite it's a moral tale about sort of dismissing that but also really making you ask yourself about these things and i i did come across a theory from a guy online who i that i did agree with who was talking about one one of the the key like ancient myths of the lore and attached to the prophecies the azora high mm-hmm. yeah where Prince that was promised all you know about the guy really is he's this ancient guy maybe he's also the same as these other ancient guys maybe he was around this place or that place it's all very confused you know it's myth lost in time you never hear it directly but the one thing you really hear the one thing piece of fragment you actually get is the story about how he's trying to make a magic sword and to do it he has to temper it by stabbing it through his wife mm-hmm. and that this guy's theory that that resonated with me was that uh, when you hear this st- story told a couple of times in the books, you have these uh, the unlikely hero characters saying to themselves, "God, that guy sounds like he sucks. I guess I could never be a hero because I could I don't see myself uh, killing my wife for any reason." But, but then that- Stannis does some of that stuff, yeah, yeah. in the and books, s- and sounds like Stannis is a is a monster and yeah. is making the wrong choices, and and so. His part of his theory was that this is the trap that the showrunners fell into and why it and why they ended up having John kill Daenerys at the end is because they thought they still thought that this was about, oh, it's about make, you know, the hero has to make the hard calls. And sometimes that means like killing the woman you're boning. Like hot aunt. Yeah. And and his point was like. No, the point of that story is that Azora High was a very bad person who did a very bad thing. And despite the fact that he's also probably the last hero of Westeros, what the what Martin's trying to do is confuse you and make you ask the question and make the characters ask the question like, wait, is what I'm being told a hero really what a hero is? And that that goes in line with like my impressions, my, the vibe I was getting off it. And I like that. And so now I'm assuming Martin's engaged in a a pretty serious, well thought out literary project here. Okay. Like go with me on that. Mm -hmm. All the history is bullshit. Okay. So that story, you're, he's supposed to be the last hero who drove away the long night. Okay. And, and fought and maybe fought the original war with the others. He kills his wife. And you're supposed to say, oh, he had to do it. He's actually the villain, okay? It also, in that same, the, the very few bits you actually get, that when he did that, a crack went across the moon and a thousand dragons spilled out. Mm-hmm. And I guess elsewhere in the books is mentions that there maybe used to be two moons floating mm-hmm. overhead. In a story where the original thing, the, the cataclysm that started all this that made the world that we enter is whatever was the long night whatever was the origin or at least the war with the others and the start of the uneven seasons is thing this is the kernel this is where it all starts if you're just being told offhand that that the place had a second moon at some point and now 
and and it's made and that some there was a crack across the moon something happened to the moon at this in this early like key point in the start of the long night or maybe the end of the long night or something and the seasons are out of whack when the seasons are off balance that's that's a wobbling orbit okay now you can say <laughs> well it's just some magic that happened fine but but there happened to be a second moon that was destroyed that's what would happen if you had us had a moon in a st- and you were had a some stable orbit for millions of years and it went away is you would have a wobbling axis in your orbit and you would have randomly uneven seasons uh. that says something to me if i'm also going with my theory that all the old myths are bullshit they're all uh propaganda essentially um and he was the bad guy and if there's a whole other moon and you have to ask where where did the the others come from you say oh there was some conflict and they were made by the children of the forest well that's where the white walkers come from yeah you know um the idea, though, is that there's always been a sort of like dark magic that has existed on the one. I mean, you know, not to prolong this conversation uh, in any weird way, but uh, the interesting thing about Martin's universe is the world is both very material and magical, right? Yeah. So uh, while characters certainly believe in things like magic, various religious things, the books reveal piece by piece that a lot of that stuff is just bullshit. Like it's yeah. just religion. They just, yeah. they just believe weird shit. Cause they believe weird shit. Like, uh, the comet in the first book when they all see the comet and every one of them has a different religious prophecy mm-hmm. about it. Right. Like, uh, you know, you could say, Oh, well, that's just a common. They're all having these things. But at the same time, there actually is like magic in mm-hmm. the world. The interesting thing being, it hasn't been revealed in a very long time it hasn't manifested in a very long time so even the people that are there who believe all this weird shit and have all these weird religions and all this kind of stuff even they're like a little skeptical when it first shows up yeah. so when they first hear there's dragons and essos again they don't believe it right yeah. when they first when they hear about everything on the other side of the wall despite they've all grown up their entire lives hearing about you know tales of dark magic from beyond the wall uh none of them believe it you know um like- which is you know an interesting kind of layout the children of the forest are definitely like, I mean, like all the other characters are pretty morally, you know, gray. Um, mm-hmm. They're, they're manipulative in, uh, you know, like uh, getting Bran uh, to whatever the, 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 the land with uh, Brynden rivers. He's like the three eyed yeah. crow or whatever. And yeah. then they're kind of like, or the three eyed crow guys trying to like influence things from behind the scenes. And in the other books, he's shown as being kind of like, uh, you know, manipulative and uh, uh, calculating. And so, I don't know, there definitely is the theme of like, you know, Martin is like subverting some of the traditional, you know, fantasy tropes where there's like, you know, the ancient, you know, good people and then like the the ancient evil Um yeah, like the Children of the Forest um, and, uh, you know, the the First Men. I mean, it seems like he's hinting like that they're pretty fucked up and not necessarily the good guys. Well, let, let me just sum it up by asking you this question. Whose fault is all this? <laughs> That's my fucking problem with gotcha. the with the the Children of the Forest created the this whole problem. 
if it's not, if this all isn't humanity's fault, then it's, then what's the point? If this is boring. It's just humanity and thus the descendants well, of humanity, all these people, they're just bystanders to these weird other races, like having these bizarre conflicts. And then let me bring this last thing in the obvious climate change parable here. Okay. Winter is coming. The sea, you know, the, the climate, we have a climate <clears throat> disaster coming. If it's not man's fault, what, what's the point of this parable? What, what, what caused climate change? Capitalism. What better metonymy for capitalism than genocide? <laughs> the wall is to protect the last survivors who are still on the planet from the forces of Azura High, the last hero, from going in and finishing off the job. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that Martin is not so hard on the children of the forest. Essentially, the argument would be the there is a balance or whatever that's happening in Westeros, an uneasy sort of tension between the children of forest and these forces north, uh, you know, on the in, from the icy slopes north of the wall, right? Well, it's not built yet. And uh, when the first men show up, it's one of those things that throws off. It's a third factor that shows up and throws off the equation, right? And leads to a, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a stumbling block of consequences that could not have been predicted prior. Now, so in that sense, people are at fault again, Greg. So you could, you could be mad at the people, right? But, I think there uh, has to be a great crime. <laughs> I think there has to be a great crime that started all this that must be atoned for. That's what I, that's no. the vibe I feel this is all leading toward. Um, Justin, you know, any, any last, you know, have I convinced you at all? Are you, are you wavering in your faith about like how you think this world works going into anticipating the release of the next book? Well, like as far as I know, not to, you know, be anti death of the author, you know, cause I am a, literature major but you know george R. R. martin himself is like kind of a lib like i don't necessarily think he's like uh anti-capitalist like i don't think there's going to be that kind of like you know moral to this to this tale um i hope there's not like a malthusian argument that you know people are bad and we gotta depopulate all, all the people uh, i wouldn't like that either I mean, I think I think it is an interesting argument that um, Azora Ahai is probably like not not the best person and probably committed some atrocities. I think that would like fit in with uh, with with Martin's writing that Azora Ahai is, is isn't necessarily like uh, the hero. I'm interested in that part. Um, I just don't know. Yeah, if it's gonna be like uh, like what Brian was saying, like a binary conflict like mm. that yeah you know it seems more like it's leading towards people uh embracing these prophecies as their own is uh step one to doing some probably pretty horrifying things uh you know i mean the one again the one thing that's kind of interesting about the books is his depictions of just daily life uh in westeros and essos even which is yeah, you hear these rulers who are talking about these grand projects, you know, some of them for the best of reasons, some of them for cold, calculated, cynical reasons, right? But they all have their reasons. But on the ground, it's all the same, which is you're just getting ground up in the fucking meat grinder, mm -hmm. no matter who's in charge, you know? And uh, I, I think that is 
if uh, you were to talk about the sort of hippie lib message of George R. R. Martin, I think that's the message okay. is that the, the the regular people get ground up by the games of those in power. Yeah. 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 Well, they're going to get ground up for winter if uh, someone doesn't step up and pay the bill, I think. Okay, last question. Justin, who's going to be king in the end? Ooh, that's a good question. Wait, this I've... is lightning round. This is lightning round. You just got to answer. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, Jon Snow. Okay. Brian. Uh, no one. Westeros breaks itself back up again and is no longer unified. Okay, that's correct. There will be no <laughs> Seven Kingdoms. There won't be much of anything that started the story because the thing that set it all, that built the world, the status quo ante, mm. will be resolved in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, a new world will be built. That's what I think. Um, okay. Uh, thank you for indulging me, guys. Uh, yeah, wait till you hear what I have to say about the Night's King. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks again. George is going to finish, by the way. He's going to finish the next book in a timely fashion. That's going to happen. Uh, well, the timely fashion went out the window a long time ago. Uh, several publishing dates have been missed, but uh, I argue he will not finish the book. And not only is that okay, it's actually cool. And uh, George R. R. Martin is personally a cool guy. Well, he doesn't the- owe us. Yeah, it's not his job to educate us, but also leave leave him alone, nerds. Leave him alone. Those those are the only predictions made today that there will be eventually finite answers to. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Michael Rockefeller was heir to one of the most powerful families on the planet. Yet, he chose to spend his time hunting for primitive artwork on the remote island of New Guinea. When we last left him, he had made a deal to purchase ceremonial bish poles from the Asmat people in the village of Oshjanep. Could these villagers have played a part in Michael's disappearance? When Michael returned to the agreed-upon meeting place to purchase the bish poles, the Oshinep didn't show. Miffed that he didn't get his poles, Michael decided to rejoin the film crew in the Western Highlands with his artifacts. Michael brought the artifacts back with him to New York, where the bish poles were a sensation in the art scene. All was not so easy at home, however. While Michael was away, his father, then governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, had lost a tough primary campaign against Richard Nixon to be the Republican nominee for president. The increased scrutiny of the campaign had led to rumors that Nelson was having an affair. Nelson told his wife privately that he wanted a divorce so that he could marry another woman. The news rocked the family, with most of the children taking the mother's side. Michael tried to sit on the fence when he returned to New York, hoping to secure more funding for future expeditions to New Guinea. Before leaving again for New Guinea in October, Michael even got into a fight with his twin sister over his father's infidelity. Back in New Guinea, Michael felt at home. Writing in his journal, Michael mused, quote, The West thinks in terms of bringing advance and opportunity to such a place. In actuality, we bring a cultural bankruptcy. Michael felt that people like the Asmat, uncorrupted by the modern need for accumulation, were leading more fulfilling lives than his counterparts back home, and in a way, he envied them. 
he quickly set about putting together an even more ambitious expedition to the southern side of the island to revisit the Azmat people. Previously, Michael had traveled via dugout canoes that were built by the native people themselves. But Michael wanted to move faster. He asked around all over the island for a motorboat to better traverse New Guinea's rivers. He was introduced to a Dutch official who had a small catamaran, two canoes loosely tied together with a piece of sheet metal and an outboard motor attached. The official warned Michael that the boat was hardly seaworthy and would capsize in adverse circumstances. Not to be deterred, Michael purchased the boat. On the second visit, Michael loaded his boat with even more steel goods and tobacco for trading. Michael and his guide visited more than 25 villages in the first week, picking up hundreds of items. They were sticking to the New Guinea coastline for navigation and had picked up two local teenage boys to help act as guides. As they crossed the mouth of the Besji River, they found themselves caught in a cross current that threatened to capsize the boat. Their young guides urged them to abandon ship and make for the shoreline, but Michael refused to abandon his newly acquired artworks. The two teenagers promised to find help and made for the coast. Michael and his Dutch guide spent the rest of the day trying to move his artwork to the tin roof of the catamaran to keep it from being destroyed. The shifting weight caused the boat to lean and ultimately capsize. They then decided to wait out the night with the wreckage of their boat in the hopes that the two boys were able to find help. When they woke up, they could barely see the coastline as the currents had been slowly pulling them out to sea. The Dutch guide estimated that they had drifted about three miles off the coast, but the real distance was closer to 11 or 12. I think we should swim to shore, Michael told his guide. The guide pleaded with him not to do it, reminding him that the number one nautical rule is if the boat is still floating, you stay with the boat. He urged him to wait for a rescue. Michael was having none of it. He tied two empty gas cans around his body, jumped in the water, and turned to his guide. I think I can make it. His guide then watched him swim away toward the shore that was now gone over the horizon. Michael got smaller and smaller until he disappeared as well. Hours later, a Dutch plane flew over the wrecked boat, spotting Michael's guide. The teenage guides had made it to shore and organized for a rescue party. A boat was only 10 miles away and began making its way to the wreck. Rene, Michael's Dutch guide, was rescued from the water. But Michael Rockefeller was never seen again. Wow, I can't believe there's a third part to this story. This is uh <laughs> he's 23 and a Rockefeller. He's a fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah. Ultimate fail son move right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pretty that that um yeah, I hate it when I wake up and I like see a speck of the horizon and I'm in the middle of the sea. That sucks, man. Yeah. I've seen uh, 14 miles on a calm sea. Um, <laughs> that if you don't see the horizon, you can't swim. Yeah, it seems like a bad choice. I have to say, uh, I do appreciate the hilarious irony that it's like hours later a plane flies over and spots the the Dutch guide. <laughs> Vindicated for the rest of his life, that Dutch man. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, the Greg, is this is this true? Is the first rule of the sea stay on the boat? Oh, it, <laughs> you yes, that is absolutely. You should only ever step up off of a boat, uh, like onto something else, or let it sink beneath you. Uh, you never get off the boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I yeah, very curious to see how they're could possibly be a third part to this story that's right listener this tale of this uh young rich dipshit is not over so we'll be coming back to that very very that curious where that could be going yeah like, is, like how can there be a part three to this this could have just ended right there and been called good so i'm like on the edge of my seat now can you believe there's more <laughs> Welcome to Justin at the Cinema. Justin Roll, welcome back. Good to have you. It's great to be here. Um, re- really happy uh, to do this segment. And uh, I really want to thank the Esposito Group for sponsoring this uh, segment, making it possible me to be here today and review this uh movie well i uh, can't wait to hear uh what you've got to review for us you know uh i don't get out to see many movies uh anymore but you know i, I try to wait for uh recommendations from justin from on the cinema <laughs> yeah and i will say that you know if you need help getting your business off the ground you're having trouble with uh, the competition uh the esposito group will help you out for a small fee or a cut, as they like to call it. Hey, uh, that's good advice for any time, right? You know, especially in these trying times. We're yeah. businessmen. You know, if if somebody needs to be uh, "quote unquote" taken care of, you know, they'll be really, <laughs> they'll be really helpful. And they were helpful excellent. to me, you know, for getting my business off the ground. Excellent, excellent. That's great to hear. But yeah, so today uh, we'll be talking about uh, a wonderful new movie called. Paradise City. Have either of you heard of it? Uh, no, I've not. Yeah, but I don't like Greg. I just don't get out to the cinema enough, so I'm very excited. Well, you really should. Uh, you know, cinema brings people together. It's really important. You'll be a better person if you go to the cinema more often, Brian. So you should try and fix that. And I've also heard that movies are back. Would you Would you agree with that? Just are movies back? Well, they never left. They've always been oh, here with okay. us. So you know, I know like. <laughs> So some of these people were like, oh, you got to wear a mask and you can't go in public places. But, you know, those of us who are true patriots, you are always, you know, at the cinema on location. Excellent. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be talking about uh, the wonderful movie Paradise City, which uh, features uh, Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis um, <laughs> and uh, John... John Travolta, Bruce Willis and John Travolta. Yeah. So Bruce Willis is a bounty hunter and he's shot and presumed dead after disappearing in Maui waters. And then Bruce Willis's son in the movie, Ryan, not his real life son, his ex-partner, Stephen Dorf, Dorf. And a local detective, Priya Lundberg, they set out to find the killers. 
after being threatened by a ruthless power broker who's John Travolta, it appears Ryan and his team are out of options until an excursion, the closely guarded island community of Paradise City unites them with an unforeseen ally. Ooh, that's intriguing. That's exciting. Sounds like a thriller. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Justin, uh, of course, we all know Stephen Dorff as the man who, you know, promotes vaping. Is that a traditional Hollywood transition from vape promotion to acting? I hope so. I hope that a uh, kid who does all of the, you know, fulcrum, come in, Yodi gang. I hope he gets to be a movie star because he is very uh, charismatic and I really like all his movies of, uh, you know, smoking weed at Lowe's. And I hope that transitions to the silver screen. I think it will. Yeah, he's got charisma. Yeah, this is some good advice for our listeners out there who maybe have been uh, vaping for pay or even without pay. Uh, you know, look, uh, maybe there's a transition you can make in this new economy. You yeah, know, you can get paid for it. I'd also like to see maybe some of those uh, people who were just earnest believers in the cryptocurrency future who acted as spokespeople for that movement uh, over the last year. Uh, you know, see if any of them have any acting talent. Um, mm, yeah, because you know, I was very sort of drawn in and convinced by a lot of those commercials. I don't remember their names or anything, but you know, there was a kind of natural charisma there, and I could see some of them uh, going to Hollywood. What do you think, Justin? I mean, I would especially like to see. I don't know if he's a crypto guy, but he's funded by crypto guys. Uh, Blake Masters, I think, could really make uh, the transition mm. to the silver screen. I think he's got uh, the charisma. Uh, he he loves our country. You know, a lot of these liberal actors hate, hate America and that makes me want not want to see their movies as much. So yeah, he also has a great name. That's powerful. Blake masters. That's, that's a strong name, you know, uh, this John, whatever, right? Uh, <laughs> like Blake masters. That's the name you want to see on the silver screen. Yeah. Yeah. John Travolta, you know, not, not the most powerful name, but Hey, let, let, let's get back to the movies. Let's, Let's get on oh. track a bit. See, this is what happens. Me and Greg can't get to the movies because we keep getting lost in the conversation. Yeah, this segment is, we really are all about the movies here. We don't want, you know, any any distractions. Um, so one, one thing I really liked about this movie was that, um, you know, Bruce Willis and John Travolta are both, you know, bald. They kind of look like each other. And, mm. uh, you know, that gets you thinking about uh, the the great 90s classic movie, uh, face off with John Travolta and uh, Nicolas Cage, oh. and uh, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it may, it makes you think like may, maybe this movie could be in the in the face off uh, universe. Maybe it's a sequel or a, or a prequel. And because um, John Travolta and Bruce Willis are facing off in this movie, they're not taking their faces off. Well, I don't want to spoil it, but. <laughs> well, you know, extended universe, extended universes are uh, bigger than ever these days, guys. So, yeah, the people who look alike extended universe uh, could be, I mean, it's limitless, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's a great movie title, by the way. People who look alike? No, Limitless. Let's make a movie. <laughs> Let's call it Limitless. I think that'd be good. What do you think, Justin? Would you back our movie? Limitless? Yeah. Yeah. No, Just off the title. That's, that's a strong. We could get Blake Masters in that. It's yeah. about I, I. I'm already getting ideas. It's about Brian vaping until he's a genius. 
Maybe going to Lowe's. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows what will get done? But in summary, um, you know, I, I would give this movie. Remember, the movie we're reviewing is Paradise City. Uh, it's out in theaters right now. You could go see it, your local movie theater. Um, I'd give it five bags of popcorn and one skin off somebody's face in honor of the movie Face Off. You know, just imagine five bags of popcorn and then facial skin right next to it. Yeah, off the movie Face Off from the Limitless Extended Universe. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, have you seen any other movies lately, Justin? Yeah, what, what, one thing, you know, I would actually recommend you watch is um, the movie Ricky O, which is going to be playing at the Beacon on December 8th. I haven't actually seen the movie, but I know it's like, uh, you know, an action, like martial arts movie. And the clips I've seen are like pretty ridiculous. Like the main guy, Ricky, like punches people and they like uh, explode or like get, you know, it, disfigured or whatever like it's very over the top action it's fun and it will support a good cause uh uh all the proceeds of the movie um are going to i believe i don't know exactly how this works but it's going to the starbucks workers relief fund which will help out starbucks workers as they go on strike and try and bargain for a contract um yeah it should be fun but yeah, that sounds really cool. I'm going to try and get after that. Uh, yeah, the Starbucks, a lot of Starbucks workers around the country, and I know some stores in Seattle here are on strike right now, or they were as of, I don't know, yesterday. Um, so uh, yeah, good luck to them out there. Of course, we want to support them. And uh, if we can do it by going down to the Beacon and seeing a movie recommended to us by uh, Justin at the cinema, then I mean, this pretty much crosses off all the boxes for me for getting out of my house, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the beacon cinema, 4405 Rainier Avenue, South Seattle, Washington. Yeah. That's the place to be. You know, they have a uh, delicious popcorn. Uh, they have Rainier tall boys. What more do you need? They do. Brian, during the break, I, Guys, I don't know. I've, I've dialed every number on the outline, and they're all coming up not in service. Uh, I got one last person in my phone book. Should I, should I give him a call? Yeah, I mean, as a last resort, yeah. All right. Hey, Brian, how's it going? Oh, hey, Ryan. Uh, me and the boys are here. You remember Munya, of course. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Ryan. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving, man. It's good to see you again. Yeah, I got Greg here with me. Oh, hey, hey Greg. happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. We're just we're just hanging out, man, doing our thing, potting, you know, like we do. What are you up to? Uh, about to sit down for dinner. You do know that this is a holiday. Oh, that sounds rad, Ryan. Dinner's it's an important meal. I consider it one of the three most important meals of the day. Uh, oh, cool, cool. But, so uh, yeah, I'll call me you and back, the guys okay? were talking though, and they were asking me to like, what's going on with this whole strike in California thing? And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go to the first number of my phone book, and that's my good friend Ryan. All right, uh, he's a doctor. He's a professor. Not that kind of doctor. Uh, he should know. He's down in California. He should know. Just want to uh, clarify, not the doctor 
but with a useful function for society. <laughs> I, 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 I really do need to sit down for dinner soon. But uh, yes, I tell my students that all the time, that if there's a medical emergency, I, I will run. Great. Well, it sounds like you got time then. So um, the thing is, is we're trying to figure out this, this whole, there's some sort of strike happening. Uh, it's at the University of California campuses. Uh, some big deal. It's not about football. I, you know, look, I, I don't know what's going on. What, what's happening down there, Ryan? Okay. It's a beautiful day. It's 80 degrees outside. I really, okay, let's make this quick. It is uh, a strike uh, that's occurring UC system wide. Uh, across all all the UC campuses, about forty eight thousand uh, academic student employees, including uh, grad students, postdocs, um, professional researchers, uh, TAs, etc., that are that are striking for a pay increase, a cost of living increase, which was would be a big win, um, and uh, you know uh, fee waivers. Um, and better job security. Oh, okay. And so this happened at all University of California schools. So like the, you know, California State Universities, it's happening there too, right? No, 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 no. So the way it works is the you, the California system is, is a three-tier system. UCs are, according to uh, the way that it was devised, are dedicated to research. Uh, they give out PhDs, do grad work, grad students, and they admit a certain top percentage of the state population. The California State University system is designed for instruction, um, for uh, primarily instruction-driven, um, although that's slightly changed over the years, and um, is largely, it is the largest public university system in the country, um, and admits, you know, it serves the vast majority of Californians, and then you have the community college system which, ser- which serves the wider public, those that can benefit from higher ed but may not need a college degree for what they're doing, um, say, kind of job training, apprenticeship programs, that kind of stuff. So it's the biggest college system in the country, bigger than the University of Washington system? Uh, so the UC, no, I mean, the Cal State system. Is oh, okay. Yeah. Well, the UC system sounds like uh, it's maybe overstuffed with this thing that you call graduate students. Um, if the graduate students go on strike, I mean, who cares, right? Like, what does that just mean? There's gonna be like less blue hair dye being uh, committed to students' hair. Like, what? What? What does it matter? Like, what do these grad students do? So the color of choice now is orange. First of all. Um, <laughs> second of all, uh, uh, grad students. W- perform the vast majority of the necessary labor for instruction and a very large portion of the research labor. Um, Grad students, without grad students, your papers do not get graded. And let alone, especially if they are TAs, professors that are are uh, the instructors of record, they are giving large lectures. The people that are working like face-to-face with individual undergrad students are graduate students, right? They are the ones that are making sure that they are prepared for exams, that they can write an essay, that they can actually write a sentence, um, that they can critically (laughs) analyze uh, texts, or that they can perform, um, you know, the lab lab thingies. I'm not a science person, so lab thingies. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the lab thingies. Yeah. (laughs) They make sure the beakers are clean. Uh, (laughs) 
Yeah. And I mean, you know, even at a uh, top tier university, like say ours, the University of Washington, Seattle, residents are just teaching classes too, right? You taught some classes where you taught, right? Absolutely. So I personally taught two, I was the instructor of record for two classes uh, that I designed. Um, and my pay was not, this was not bumped up. It was the same as if I was TA, um, even though I am the instructor of record. Well, the thing is, is, uh, you know, if I'm a student and I'm thinking of going to University of Washington or University of California at Berkeley to uh, learn about, you know, making my parents mad or whatever, uh, I'm paying a lot of money yearly for that. Right. You know, it's expensive. So I can only assume that money is going to my instructors and grad students must just be very well compensated for this. Work. Yeah, I mean. I was only able to buy a 1980s Ferrari. Um, that was uh, <laughs> the limits of that. But no, seriously, uh, um, no, we are not compensated. Uh, grad students are not compensated uh, well at all. In fact, you know, the vast majority of tuition is does not go to instruction. It goes to cover operating costs. But because of the way that public universities have been defunded, from the early 1970s onward, uh, they are used as ways to pay off bond uh, obligations. Um, vast, if you see the pretty buildings on campuses, if you see the um, stadiums, et cetera, those are not built with tuition money. Those are built with uh, bonds. Um, universities can uh, you know, issue their own bonds. And as a, as a result of that, they need to maintain a good credit rating. Maintaining that good credit rating is uh, made possible through uh, the ability to raise tuition um, and the ability to keep operating costs low and to have uh, a labor force that is very, um, what's the word for it? Um, Pliable. Pliable. Yeah. (laughs) Or, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that is where the vast majority of your tuition is going to go, is going to pay off those bond obligations. It does cover some of the operating costs, but yeah. Yeah, this must be America, Ryan, because we've dug uh, an inch deep and we've already found a real estate scam. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. But, Everything uh, is real estate. Everything's real estate, baby. Um, Always has been. <laughs> and in California, real estate and water. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That 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 new com- new hot commodity on the market, right? <laughs> well, you need the water to increase the value of the real estate. That's the thing. first. You get the water, <laughs> then you get the real estate, or maybe the other way around. I don't know. But uh, so, yeah, with grad students, I mean, you bring up an interesting point, which is I think the way the university would spend this is having grad students work as TAs or even just teach their own individual classes. Yeah, they're not being paid in money, right? But you're being paid in experience. You know, and in a way, isn't that worth more than money? Yeah, no, that, yeah, sure. In a system where there was a job waiting for you after, right? However, for especially for the vast majority of humanities and social science PhDs, there isn't a job waiting for you. If you're going to pursue academic, an academic life, you're going to be living your life as an adjunct, um, working contract by contract uh, for. Myself, as an adjunct, I'm in a union where we do have uh, steps for uh, uh, job security. Um, But the vast majority of university systems, at least particularly in the public 
university systems have moved their labor towards adjunct labor. Um, and tenure lines are not being filled. And indeed, the tenure density at most public universities is actually very, very, very low in yeah, terms of what, look, who's doing the teaching. Yeah. And if you look at, uh, you know, particularly at, like, say, my college, which is a community college, um, I think adjuncts are teaching 70 or 80 percent of the courses. Uh, but, yeah. If you look at any union contract for a unionized college workforce, if you dig through it, there'll be two sections. Uh, there'll be one pay for tenure track professors, and then there'll be one you know, pay for adjunct. You know, sometimes you'll even get a third like tertiary tier. Uh, if you go look in those, the thing you'll notice is the same work has very different levels of pay <laughs> for these people. And I think kind of what you're showing us, Ryan, is in order to pay off a real estate scheme, uh, and impress their creditors, colleges have figured out how to create these different tiers of workers that they pay lower and lower amounts to do essentially the same work with tenure track professors at the top, right? Uh, adjuncts just below them. And at the very bottom, coming in at uh, no money every year, <laughs> at, you know, graduate students, right? And yeah. interestingly, yeah, with the split, the college has very interestingly done this thing where those lower tiers are making up more and more of the instructional time. And that top tier is becoming more and more endangered, uh, going the way of the dodo. Absolutely. And I would say that that top tier, because while they do not have uh, teaching obligations at the level that graduate students or uh, adjuncts do have, their service obligations are through the roof. As there are fewer and fewer tenure track faculty, the more and more service that they have to perform at the university level. So generally, the teaching burden of the lower two thirds is the service burden of the top third. Um, yeah. And what's been amazing with this strike has been the support that uh, the unions have received, that grad students and international students and postdocs have received from uh, tenure faculty. Uh, bringing their and adjunct faculty, bringing their um, students to the picket line, bringing um, their classes to the picket line. Now, most of in the universe, in the California system and higher ed systems, most unions have no strike clauses. So they cannot engage in a sympathy strike, but uh, they can commit to actions in order to not pick up the labor that is not performed um, during mm -hmm. the strike. And that's been a big uh, you know, that's that's going to be one of the things to watch and, main, and see that they can maintain. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, part of solidarity, I mean, obviously, the better part of solidarity would be going on strike with them. But part of solidarity, too, is refusing to, yeah, do the extra work that's been left on the table. Right. To not like go too off topic, but I, I am just curious, like your thoughts on why unions like it seems like a lot of unions do have no strike clauses specifically in, um, you know, uh, like grad student unions and everything. Do you know, like, what where their emergence comes from? Because I think, you know, in my view, like, strikes are what where the leverage is with unions. So, like, what's what's the incentive for unions to agree to no strike clauses? Well, I think, so I'm not exactly sure, but part of it is, is that this is from a public sector union um, that's is really, really a big thing in the public sector unions. And I think part of it is by uh, law. Um, you know, as a, uh, there is, there are, depending on the state, there are certain laws regarding like how negotiations should proceed. 
Um, for our bargaining system, it's a very, very complex set of steps that need to be completed even before you would uh, declare a strike. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is something, no strike clauses have proliferated and that is something to, that's another terrain of struggle that needs to be thought of. Yeah, yeah. yeah makes sense. Yeah, I mean, particularly with uh, teachers' unions, this came I mean, you hear it all the time now, but this specifically came up in the 60s, uh, whether teachers' unions, it was even legal for them to strike, uh, which you could take, you know, guess the position of the city, right, versus the union itself. Uh, and I think this has been part of the compromise. The other thing is just, you know, like the IAM at Boeing also has a no-strike clause. Uh, it's just the weak position of labor, you know, the, the yeah. you know, your boss is going to demand it and you either have the juice to tell them no or you don't. You know? Well, or if you're a public sector worker, like there's PACO, right? Where you have yeah. the fear of just being like somebody with a lot of political weight behind them that can just discharge you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This, in the case of a public sector worker, the state can intervene and just literally fire everybody and bring in uh new people that and it's, it's hard to appeal to the state for labor code violations when the state is the one who's done all the labor code violations it kind of tells you how that's going to go at the nlrp but you know uh so this all being said i mean we, we talked about how grad you know graduate students they are the lowest paid they're picking up more and more of the work they're essentially just used as a low-wage workforce uh, the university dangles the carrot of, you know, academic jobs in the future, but it's not serious about that. Uh, just to give our listeners an idea, Ryan, uh, what does like a grad student get? What does a grad student make in a year? Like, if you like, what were you making at UW as a grad student? If you want to share I, your finances. <laughs> uh, yeah, I always, I, I, uh, it's been a bit, I think at the highest I was paid. And so this would probably be in 2015, 2016. I think it got up to $20,000 a year for nine months. And now grad students are only paid over nine months. Um, mm-hmm. while, and then so your health care uh, also expires during the summer. Um, and you can pick up and many contracts prohibit you or your programs prohibit you from picking up additional work um, on the side. So you're supposed to dedicate your entire time to... Uh, working on your on your research, teaching, working at the university, but how you're going to pay for rent? Well, who cares, right? Um, now, that's been a huge demand for these grad students is that they're heavily rent burdened. They're making twenty seven thousand dollars a year in California, which is just uh, is impossible to do. Um, and now the UC says they're offering housing, but the UC housing rates compared to the rental rates in the communities that these universities are in are almost, are almost identical. Um, So there is no break. Uh, You know, in San Diego, I think I read that one grad student was paying two thirds of their salary over two thirds of their salary to rent to back to the UC um, Mm -hmm. in order to, you know, be a student there. And then during the summer, you can take temporary, temporary work where you work under the table. I worked in uh, an additional job during the school year as a tutor. I had friends that worked as waiters, right? So not only are you working during the day for those of my friends that worked uh, in the service, you know, being a waiter or a bartender, they're working through the night, right? So it's a whole mm-hmm. whole day of, of work. And then during the summer, you have the choice of either living off of credit cards, taking out loans, 
or again, finding that temporary work. And especially if you're doing work that requires international travel, this becomes a really, really big issue. How are you going to pay rent abroad while also trying to find a subletter if possible back mm-hmm. at home or paying two rents? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, you get this complaint, I feel, in the popular culture about like rich kid graduate students, whereas the, you know, sort of, you know, capital's arrangement of higher education post-70s has done everything in its power to create that situation, right? To make it where only, you know, people who have some sort of money can do this because it's impossible to live on this kind of money. I mean, you're really scraping, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's not great. It's, uh, it's, it's a bad situation. Um, so all your uh, friends and the UC system, they're all on strike. They're having fun on the picket line, right? They got their turkey hats, all that. They're having a great time. Uh, what happened to you guys? <laughs> uh, yeah, I need to go back to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ryan. Thanks for joining us. Get a life. There's more to life than podcasting. There, you know, go outside, get some fresh air. Brian, last time I saw you, you were pale as hell. So go outside, get some sun. Yes. It says the academic. I, the solution here is to abolish college. Also, <laughs> listeners, uh, uh, belay this man's orders about going outside. Belay his orders about not podcasting. All right. Uh, this man's a crazy man. Just ignore everything he said for the last 20 minutes. All right, Ryan. <laughs> thank you for coming on. And uh, we'll have to have you on again uh, to talk this strike because it's, it's fucking huge. As he said, it's 48,000, I think, uh, academic workers, right? It's an enormous strike. And, and, uh, and adjuncts are on strike at the new school in New York City. So, you know, power to them as well. Good, good. I mean, hopefully they can finally overtake the old school at New York City. <laughs> uh, all right. All right, Ryan. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Michael Rockefeller's quest to bring native artwork from New Guinea back to the United States ended in disaster when his catamaran capsized off the southern coast of the island. Michael's guides were all able to make it to safety, but after making a desperate swim for the shore, Michael was never seen again. Did Michael ever make it to land? Or is his just another life claimed by the greedy ocean depths? Michael's father, Nelson Rockefeller, was not a man of some minor standing. His grandfather was the great oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller. His father, John D. Rockefeller Jr., was a titan of American finance who had ordered the infamous Ludlow Massacre that killed more than 20 miners and their families in order to protect the Rockefeller mining interests in Colorado. Nelson himself had worked his way to the top of the New York Republican Party, had served in the Roosevelt and Eisenhower administrations, and was elected governor of New York in 1959. But even with all of that power, there were things that were still out of reach for a Rockefeller. Nelson and Michael's twin sister, Mary, made their way to New Guinea immediately after receiving word of Michael's disappearance. The Dutch authorities were pulling out all the stops to find Michael, searching by plane and by boat, hiring thousands of natives to comb the area looking for him. Upon arriving in New Guinea, Michael's Dutch guide, Rene, 
was brought in to explain to the Rockefellers what happened. Nelson listened, asked Renee questions, and expressed his belief that Michael can make the swim. He was confident that they were going to find him. In private, Mary confessed that she found something suspicious about Renee's testimony, as if he were not telling the whole truth. She noted that he kept looking to the Dutch officials in the room any time they would ask him a question. Shortly after Nelson and Mary's arrival in New Guinea, a fuel can is found on the shore near the crash site. Was it one of the cans that Michael had tied to himself as a flotation device? No one could say. But further signs of the young man continued to be elusive. After five days of searching, a Dutch official tells Nelson that there is no longer any chance that they will find Michael alive. After nine days, Nelson accepts that his son drowned, boards a plane, and leaves New Guinea never to return. As it turns out, Mary Rockefeller was not the only one to find something suspicious in the Dutch response to Michael's disappearance. Father Cornelius Van Kessel was a Catholic missionary who had spent years living among the Asmat people. He had long been the only white man many of them had ever seen. During the search for Michael, Kessel noted that all of the villages had provided people to help with the search. That is, all of the villages save one. The Oshinep villagers the people who had snubbed Michael in his initial effort to purchase bish poles from them, were conspicuously absent. Further suspicion was raised when helicopters flew over the village and all of the villagers fled into the jungle. Kessel also began hearing some disturbing rumors. Rumors about how the Oshinep had killed a white man to fulfill the death ritual consecrated in the bish poles. Kessel began asking around about the village, and Michael, and the picture quickly came into focus. Back in 1958, a Dutch colonial administrator, along with a handful of colonial police officers, had approached Oshijanet in order to establish Dutch authority and dissuade headhunting among the Asmat. When he arrived in the village, all of the women, children, and dogs were gone, and only the men remained. A bad sign. Panicking, the Dutch official ordered his men to open fire on the men present, killing the five most prominent warriors in the village. The Ostrogenep had never seen the body of a person murdered with firearms and were horrified by the display. Quickly, they began constructing bish poles to rebalance the natural order through the murder of five white men. But white men were far from abundant in this region of New Guinea, and the Ostrogenep were terrified of the power of Dutch firearms. So the Poles remained in their ceremonial house until early 1961, when Michael Rockefeller visited the village and offered to buy them. When Michael's boat capsized, he had made it to shore. Mistaking him for a crocodile floating in the water, a group of Oshigenet men found him and pulled him from the water. It was bad news for Michael. He was on his own and visibly unarmed. The Asmat preferred to kill someone that they know when satisfying the Bishpole ritual so as to assure that a just balance was being created. And they knew Michael. Two of the warriors stabbed Michael with their spears, while the third removed his head. There's one last detail about the Asmat that might have been left out up to this point. When a person was killed as part of the Bishpole ritual, they were also eaten by the warriors who killed them. Michael's body was brought back to Oshijanep, his brains and other organs were consumed, 
and his blood was rubbed into one of the bish poles. Before the ritual could be fully completed, however, search parties began combing the jungle. Years later, the bish pole was never removed to be laid out in the palm fields for fear of being punished over Michael's death. The Oshijet developed a culture of silence over the incident whenever asked by outsiders. Yet Castle was positive that what he had been told about Michael's fate was true. Two weeks after Nelson Rockefeller had given up the search, Kessel sent a long report to the Dutch colonial government. In it, in all caps, he stated, quote, It is certain that Michael Rockefeller was murdered and eaten by Osha Jeanette. A week later, the Dutch colonial government cabled Amsterdam and informed them about the report from Kessel, adding, quote, It doesn't seem germane to me to give information to the press or Rockefeller Sr. at this time. In early 1962, Dutch officials dispatched the very patrol officer that Michael had purchased the catamaran from to the village to investigate further. He largely confirmed what Kessel had reported, but before the investigation could go any deeper, the transition of Western Guinea from the Netherlands to Indonesia was begun. The officer was called back, and the Dutch never reopened the case. As for the Rockefeller family, News of Michael's actual fate began to come out in drips and drabs. But Nelson chose to believe that his son had drowned. Maybe it was easier that way. Maybe he just wanted to get back to his life and his political career. Today, you can view the artwork that Michael brought back from New Guinea, including a number of bish poles, in the Michael Rockefeller wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. The ocean that was up. crazy, man. They're back, baby. <laughs> so we actually made it to shore. Like he, he, yep. he did it. Yeah, <laughs> in a way, we doubted him, but he proved us wrong. Well, I guess if the whole story was a lie, then maybe they weren't that far from shore to begin with. You know, maybe they weren't actually uh, out of uh, viewing range of the island. Yeah, it's it's a little unclear exactly uh, how true anything Renee said was. Now, Renee told them he thought they were three miles from shore. And then when he sort of identified where they were at, they were like, oh, no, that's way further than three miles from shore. <laughs> but again, also, uh, Renee, so the Dutch basically banned Renee from international travel. Uh, so he was not allowed to, like, leave the Netherlands. <laughs> Uh, specifically Smart. to one country <laughs> in yeah. particular. It's not allowed to go. Uh, interestingly, uh, Van Kessel, I, I, I laughed it out for narrative reasons, but that's actually another uh, Catholic missionary who also goes to Oshadep and is like, yeah, dude, they're like, they're like wearing uh, some like fresh bones and they're all telling me it's from this white guy they just killed. So there's only, <laughs> there's only three of us and two of us are still alive. So... <laughs> um, but uh, Castle even uh, initially the Dutch tell him like, hey, shut up, uh, don't say anything. And then Castle writes to the Vatican and hilariously the Vatican responds to him and they're like, look, uh, this might hurt our ability to continue our mission in New Guinea. So uh, also shut up. <laughs> 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 Let's uh, keep this, keep this to ourselves. <laughs> Yeah, I think everybody's right to to try to keep it under wraps. I mean, yeah, uh, this this you know 
rich, uh, rich scumbag comes through meddling in, you know, people's lives and culture and, and, uh, you know, pays the price for it. I mean, you know, why, why, why like risk, um, uh, you know, getting all those people, uh, killed in revenge or something by like, mm-hmm. uh, who know, who knows what a, what a, what a Rockefeller is going to do, you know? Yeah. But you're, I, it, you're, you're, you're like dealing with like a powerful animal, you know, it's like, like, uh, letting a lion out of a cage or something. You just, just don't piss off a Rockefeller if you can help it. Well, and to, you know, to sort of add on to that point, uh, while governor, one of his last sort of acts and his fine, I think his final term as governor of New York, uh, Nelson Rockefeller ordered the raid on Attica prison that killed, mm. I think like a dozen prison inmates and all the hostages. Um, you know, a, a pretty violent affair, uh, that he ordered cause he was just tired of seeing it in the news. So not a, you know, not a family or a man that is, uh, not, a, you know, opposed to ordering a massacre. Now, for guys like Van Kessel, who's an interesting character, like he was like literally living in Southern New Guinea. Like he dressed as the asthmat and stuff and was like living out there doing, you know, weird Catholic missionary shit. But, uh, you know, he, his sort of take on it was this murder, which was fairly well known among the asthmat because it was so traumatic. Like the murderer, when the Dutch officials came and just shot the oh God, people from yeah. up, uh, these people had never seen a gun before. Right. And so, I mean, like holes are being blown through people, you know, body parts are being essentially like blown off by these firearms. And this is really traumatic. And Van Kessel's like, you know, essentially the only way they can interpret this is a demonic force has like come into, which they're not wrong, but yeah, has I come mean, that's, into that's yeah, countryside, yeah. right? And it's like fundamentally thrown off the, you know, the sort of natural balance, right? And like, like essentially a, uh, uh, a horrifying act has happened and they're going to have to do something religiously to, yeah. you know, atone for it, to, to make it better again. And Michael just sort of hilariously <laughs> falls right into their hands. And, uh, and so, I mean, I, I guess I just want to say, I don't think that Van Kessel wanted anybody to go punish the ocean Right. I think, right. I think his thing was mainly like, should we tell his father that we know what happened to him or just keep lying to him? Well, and I mean, everybody agreed. Just keep lying to him. Yeah, I mean, from, from their perspective, <laughs> yeah, this horrifying crime happened to them in, from this outside force that they don't understand. Like, you know, we can, <laughs> It'd be absurd for us to like uh, tar their response that, you know, some whitey needs to die as racist. Right. Like from from where they're standing, like what do they know the difference between like like these these white demons coming in who are extremely dangerous? Like, you know, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Kill Whitey, you know. I mean, yeah, <laughs> so much, yeah, yeah. yeah, like the, some some rev- you know whether. It is just revenge or it is something sort of more complicated uh, either way. Like it's, it's a natural response. It makes sense and you can't really blame them. And I mean, mm-hmm. honestly, if you're going to pick like an avatar of like the sin of the colo- Euro colonial white world, like, you know, uh, the son of a of the Rockefeller clan is like, honestly, they 
Yeah, the the levels of like hilarious uh, irony that come in here, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah, you know, Oshadep of course having no fucking clue who the fuck this guy is, right? He's just he's part they of the white vibe, tribe, man. right? You know, but yeah. caught the vibe, yeah. But they there's other there were other white people around they weren't killing, right? <laughs> yeah, Van Kessel's freely walking around this area, yeah. not being killed <laughs> for years. You know? Yeah, but 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 Rockefeller gave them a vibe you know if you're Mm -hmm. uneasy if you're like i don't know there's these white people in some way they seem like they're they're just like us some there's different kinds of them but but ooh, if some of them are like demons if there is like a demonic current running through these people this guy this guy's one of them they pegged him (laughs) you know yeah 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 (laughs) Well, uh, we'll put Michael Rel- uh, Michael Rockefeller in our Great Fail Sons of History Museum. <laughs> uh, dead at Legendary. Eat- yeah, I think he made it to 24. So, dead mm. at 24, eaten. <laughs> Wait, so, so, it's so funny that they ate him. <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny. <laughs> yeah, no, it's that's hilarious. And then Rock's bones as jewelry, too. That's like... Yeah. Uh, that's a flex. Um, <laughs> so, But did the, the Netherlands... Um, like the Dutch guide, they, they didn't like intentionally like sacrifice him, right? Like, no, I, I think that probably the initial part of the story is what happened, which is the boat fucking capsized and Michael took off for sure. I just think that Renee might have seen what happened or was pretty sure when he heard that nobody had seen Michael, uh, was pretty sure that it, like he probably was killed. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I, I think that maybe the issue is Renee was was probably sh- pretty sure that he made it to shore, and then pretty sure that he uh, didn't make it after he got to shore, <laughs> <laughs> and didn't know what to say about all yeah, that. Right. And essentially, the Dutch officials told him what you saw was him swimming to the distance, <laughs> and that's it. And that's you know? it. Yeah, but yeah. I gotta say, I mean, along with Michael being eaten, uh, my second favorite part of the story is, and this is just, you can't write this shit, him basically be, like, telling him, no, I have to swim for it. Like, we're doomed. If I don't go now, who knows? Like, I have to try and save us. Taking off, you know, swimming off of the distance, and then just hours later, a plane coming over. <laughs> kids succeed them. I mean, that's just, mwah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if he had just waited like four hours, they would have been rescued. None of this would have happened, right? You know, but yeah, just chef's kiss. You want to know? be epic. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Had to be epic, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible stuff. Thanksgiving is about friends and family. And the thing about friends and family is that you can be vulnerable with them. Now, does this mechanical freak has completely and totally replaced national public radio in your life. We like to bring you a story, a journey, if you will, of personal fulfillment and discovery from time to time. Our very own Gregory has another story from his both sad and deeply tragic life for all of our little freaks today. I made a mistake or lots of mistakes. Where did it begin? Was it going to college? Was it earning a degree in political science? 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Was it taking too long to get a degree and graduating in the spring of 2009? <laughs> Was it falling back on my other love, cinema, and my dreams of a movie career? Was it moving to Los Angeles instead of New York? Or does none of that really matter because I was, if I'm honest, constitutionally unemployable? <laughs> In any case, I did set out for Hollywood, cramming my few possessions into my Nissan. My antique chrome toaster, my at that time only two-year-old homemade fruitcake, my credit cards, finally to begin my American dream. Perhaps that was it right there. Like everyone else, I'd been told my whole life that I could just go out and get a career and a dignified life. But even before the crash, I had been confused as to what that meant. Going to college was a box to check, a barrier to be removed. Not really learning anything in college must have been at least a little related to not understanding what it was for, where it was leading, how to get there. But you had to believe. What else could you do but make a Pascal's wager about your place in the world? So, graduating in a recession felt like a confirmation, almost a relief. I had no idea how I was going to make my way in the legit world. It seemed I was absolved of trying. <laughs> I kept the Joe job I'd worked through my time at UW for another year or so before getting into pictures. I snuck onto the set of an indie shooting here in Seattle, and the first people I talked to on the street were very surprised to see me employed on the production the next week. <laughs> What a thing to live out that valiant worker's myth from our past. The job secured by a confident handshake on a cold call. <laughs> and it was the movies. Like a lot of confused directionless millennials who were raised on TV, media was the only thing that made sense. When square jobs are plentiful, easy to procure and pay well, most would be happy to be bored and alienated, but secure. But when every narrow path to a future becomes a hustle, a grind that may never even pay off, doesn't that sound like trying to make it in Hollywood? If you're going to spend your 20s living in hovels with roommates, maybe there's more dignity in the path of the starving artist and a better payoff, the unalienated life of the creative, the writer. And perhaps I thought a better bet, perhaps by its very nature, the writing game is necessarily meritocratic. <laughs> well, I can blame the vast competition from the rightful squares and losers who in a better economy would have been happy in insurance or sales or the army of princelings who'd lost access to the corporate make work jobs of their birthright and were foisted onto the entertainment industry. But the truth is also that I'm just not a hustler. I don't have it in me. <laughs> <laughs> if writing scripts in solitude and occasionally cracking up minor celebrities at work wasn't how you get discovered in the 21st century, the online age, then it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> but there I was, eking it out in the ass end of the television business for barely more than a minimum wage, witnessing and enduring its labor abuses, and still having to hustle for that. But there was one thing. It kept me going. That sharpest tool of the striver. That last safety net of the crumbling American compact. Credit. 
Yes, like any good American of the dead era, I'd gotten my first line at like 18 or something. The object, of course. <laughs> <Hell> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the object, of course, was to build a credit history by charging the, regular oh, bills man. and such. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we all were told this. Damn it. Always paying off the balance before accruing any interest. And I did. I was working through college, but I also had student debt to get me through the tight months. And as my credit history grew, as I proved myself month by month to be a trustworthy American wage surf, so grew my credit limit, an expanding void never to be filled, only meant to exist <laughs> or be leveraged. <clears throat> In America, boys, you've got to spend money to make money. What more noble enterprise in which to invest than setting out to seek my own fortune? That is the idea, after all. You buy a home on credit so you have some place to live while earning it. We are gifted credit in America so we can live while earning our life. We take on debt because we believe it will make us even better able to pay it off in the long run. <laughs> And anyway, it's not like I got in my car and drove south planning to live off my credit cards. I had a plan. I thought, for example, that I knew L.A. commercial producers from working with them here in Seattle. I did. It turned out that their business, every one of them, was oriented around producing out-of-town jobs. Their specialty, hiring locals in places outside of Southern California. And I hustled uh, on Craigslist elsewhere. I walked onto more sets on the street and talked to people. And occasionally I worked at the ass end of the TV business. I did infomercials, direct to TV, network television. <laughs> <laughs> but all that's another story. What's relevant is that sometimes I paid my rent with a credit card check. Hell yeah. Was it all for a dream? Or was it in service of a responsibility? My duty to become a productive member of society with a career and a family and a home. Was I not embracing the entrepreneurial spirit? Is this not what I was told to do, what we were all told to do? I maintain, on the advice of counsel, that it was. The point is that just as I was loaned that money on the assumption that I would repay it in full one day, I took it in the same spirit. <laughs> it was succeed or die what was the point of planning for failure certainly when failure began to creep in i still believed after half a decade in la my debts and debt service had ballooned but i was blue in the face from trying to inflate some kind of career any kind of career i'd learned a thing or two gotten some promotions, made some connections, gotten some breaks that someone more savvy or just nicer to work with could have parlayed into a career in the middle management of movie crews. Maybe not the job writing bad TV I would have wanted, but money. Now, all the while, even in the post-2008 era, the major financial institution where I did my banking kept increasing that credit limit in my hour of need. So there came a time when the debt and its payments had grown so large in absolute terms to say nothing of weighing it against my heavily adjusted career prospects that I had to pull the plug on Los Angeles. 
It was just too expensive, too vast, too unforgiving. Back in Seattle, I had more friends, more family, more (laughs) security of a nebulous kind. And I told myself I had a new skill set, which was far less available that far north. I have a new credibility with my connections in the business there. And so I engaged myself in a new entrepreneurial endeavor. Because you see, and this is important, as an American raised the way I was, it would never have occurred to me, never have entered my mind that I would ever default. (laughs) So I came back. We'll skip the psychic break, the major depressive episode, the serving of the now seven-year-old homemade fruitcake at a party, and focus on financials. (laughs) By my return at the end of 2016, this dump had gotten a lot more expensive than I remembered. Worse, my plan to be the bigger fish in a smaller pond would not go as I hoped. I don't think I worked for the first six months. I would find I had to build up my freelance business from the ground floor, effectively starting over for the third time now facing a different mode of competition, the kind where the same two people take every one of the jobs you want while you wait for them to die. (laughs) (laughs) Even so, I kept my head above water. I always paid the debt service. My experience score was still over 800 when in 2018, I finally figured out how to live in this hellhole and bought the boat. More debt. I got a boat loan, of course, from a whole new bank. Now, that's secured debt. If ever I can't pay, they can just take the boat. Since they really, really don't want the boat, what that means is if ever I don't want to pay, I can just give them the boat. <laughs> Incidentally, this, is a, this was the smart move in 2008 if you were underwater on your house. Stop paying and let them get around to kicking you out at some point. Mm-hmm. You could live for Go- years like that. Mm, indeed. <laughs> And some of you out there may have an opportunity to again. (laughs) Come to think of it, being a very old boat, which again, the bank really does not want. The boat loan terms actually only allowed for financing of something like two thirds of the sale price. So to cover the rest, I had to take a personal loan from yet a new lending institution. Another 10 grand in unsecured debt added to the pile. The pile, I must reiterate again, that I see myself paying down when my life and career stabilize. I remain bought into the system, as the old man would say. Mm -hmm. I'm ever adjusting my expectations, but the jobs slowly improve, even if it is totally insecure, feast or famine gig work. I'm moving forward. I believe in a future. This is important. My mental state, my assessment of the situation is crucial to the story. It's not for nothing that I've dwelt on my inner life during this period, my motivations and assumptions. Because, you see, my friends, bankruptcy fraud is a thought crime. (laughs) (laughs) The last 10 Gs for the boat was to be the final major expansion of my leverage, From there on out, I would only replace what I paid in service each month in a more fiscally conservative, revolving maintenance plan. I was bringing in a little more, finding efficiencies in my nautical lifestyle, and I was approaching the upper limit of lines of credit, which were no longer expanding. 
when your debt to income ratio is effectively infinite, it finally trips the circuit at the bank that stops giving you money. And so it went on until the end. There came a time, and you will remember, when everything changed. 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Those gigs I work on occasionally, they're productions, not reproductions. They are transient, ephemeral. Scheduling a time to put something in front of a camera is not like going into an office every day. It's not a continuation of a status quo. It's a very specific decision to bring a new group of people together on a specific day. Pulling that trigger makes you responsible. What's more, they don't really need to happen. Nothing I've ever worked on needs to exist. So they were the first things to shut down, totally voluntarily, by just going away. The jobs just never materialized. I was out of work before anyone else and looking down a very uncertain road. Looking back the way I had come, I saw the road was paved in debt. And the bill was due. (laughs) 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 And so, like starting awake at night, my dream was dead. The future vanished. And in a rush of knowledge, an instant of enlightenment, like I'd eaten from the tree, I was simultaneously aware and convinced of the necessity of federal bankruptcy protection. Hey, some things still work, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you run that credit card, you're making a promise to repay the loan. If, when you run that credit card, you are duplicitous, planning to later seek shelter from the trustee, that could be prosecuted as fraud against your creditor and worse, against the federal government. That's part of how the system works, what permits it to work. There is refuge from the banks, but you must come by it honestly. Running up big purchases, salting away cash withdrawals, and failing to disclose the hoard on your filing, this is the stuff of organized crime. (laughs) Well, you'll notice these are all questions of the mind. Now, the court would see the red flags, and a prosecutor would use the accounting and other signs to establish the fraud, but the evidence would all be in service of proving what you were thinking. Never occurs to people that they would ever go bankrupt, nor should it ever occur to you until the very end of the road. You just come to the end of the road, and if you're lucky, someone recommends you find an attorney. (laughs) So I found one for a free consultation. He told me he was the wrong kind and to talk to another guy, and that guy filled out a form and talked me through what the trustee would ask me during the telehearing. So many people wait past the end. They hit a wall, default, miss a payment. And out of shame or delusion or ignorance, they keep believing. They go on thinking they can still dig themselves out one day, having busted their credit and their place in the social order, struggling to pay to survive. Some actually make payments when they can or get scammed into some kind of debt counseling and consolidation. It's over. I think a lot of people have a vague sense that the federal bankruptcy court, possibly America's greatest institution, (laughs) is no longer there to rescue the little guy from the big financiers who've usurously exploited them, even as they've tried in earnest to make it in this cruel world. Not since the 2005 Joe Brandon bankruptcy bill, they might think. The truth is, Joe did take a lot of the muscle out of bankruptcy. Once was a time you could be a rich guy with three houses and pulling down serious income and have run up a lot of debt and go before the trustee and say, Your Honor, sir, I don't see how I can pay. 
and the whole power of the federal government would look over at your creditors and say, beat it. It is now illegal for you to seek restitution from this persecuted soul, and your slate (laughs) would be wiped clean. Well, since 2005, all that's left of that guy is Chapter 13, The Wage Earner's Bankruptcy. I spit on Chapter 13, Debt Reorganization. (laughs) Under the protection of the bankruptcy court, but you're still making payments. But fellas, there is a land that's fair and bright where the handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. (laughs) Where the boxcars are all empty and the sun shines every day. That's right. I'm talking about chapter seven, liquidation. This is the bankruptcy of myth and legend where they turn out your pockets. The big rock candy mountain of bankruptcy. (laughs) Now they fucked it up. They took away all bankruptcy protection for student debt, motherfuckers. Thanks, Joe. And they narrowed the door, Joe and the Democrats, I mean. Mm -hmm. In service of the banks, Joe's Delaware overlords, they wanted to choke off this righteous lifeline from the shiftless shirkers who were living off that big rock candy mountain. So naturally, they put a fucking means test on it. They're Democrats. They're Democrats. These fucking morons thought everyone was going to learn to code. They still haven't figured out in 2022 how monstrously poor America has become. Not that they care. You don't even have to apply the more complicated means test if you can claim you make less than the state median income. You know anybody like that? Any millions of people? Friends, comrades, when I filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy protection, my income was zero. (laughs) And the liquidation part? Yeah, even in Chapter 7, they will take and liquidate your assets and give whatever comes of it to your creditors before telling them to fuck off and leave you alone. You may ask, what fucking assets? I don't own anything. Yeah, neither did I. Or that is to say all my assets were exempt. Your single car, your home, your personal possessions, the basic necessities of life, to this day, you get to walk away with all that. You have to make a schedule estimating all of it and its value. And there's a limit, especially on luxury items with resale value, but I'm not going to take the shirt off your back or even your watch. If I owned a home outright, I could have kept it, assuming I was living in it. The boat I own part of, over a third, if you'll recall. <laughs> but the boat loan remains. I have no obligation to pay it, but I do, so they don't come and take it away. And that was it. The debt was gone. Sure, a lot of it was interest, but I never had to pay it. They couldn't bother me about it ever again. I even submitted, as is mandatory, the bill for a bullshit accident claim and the towing and impound fee from a car share I supposedly improperly parked and never paid. (laughs) Gone. And if there is some monetary debt out there that I forgot to list from before the 2020 date of my discharge, should they ever come calling, I've got news for them and paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) I'd done it. I had achieved zero net wealth. (laughs) (laughs) And here I am today. And what were the consequences? A massive hit to my credit score for seven years. I don't know about you, but I'm not planning on buying a house. I've already got a boat. Every bank in the world knows this happened, which means not a day goes by that I don't get credit card offers so I can start again. What were the consequences? Shame? 
Uh, this Thanksgiving, I shout my bankruptcy. <laughs> shame. Well, perhaps a great learned cultural shame prevented me from ever considering this a possibility until suddenly at the end. I still have my student debt, of course, but in the end, the banks were made to write down, well, it was less than $100,000. <laughs> they made a bad bet. They backed mm -hmm. the wrong horse. Mm -hmm. They willingly, after their own due diligence, swelled their Greg position. <laughs> <laughs> A position with slim prospects in an economy they had created. The bet was that I'd carry it my whole life. Sure, I'd die in hock to them, but not before working all my living days for their usury. And in a larger sense, the function of this debt regime is to keep me going back to work, whatever work, whatever it pays, even when the downturn inevitably comes. Wrong on both counts. <laughs> you got to spank harder than that to discipline Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I did something right. By far the soundest financial move I've ever made. Shorting myself. Is it justification? Explanation? Is shame the real reason this story is so long? <laughs> and then it was over. No more debt, no more debt service. And just in time. From that day on, I was over $1,200 a month richer for not having to pay my credit card bills. And when that COVID unemployment money started to flow, it was all mine. Not a penny went to Wall Street or Delaware. <laughs> And when the plague subsided and my business, after all this time, started to bring in some good work and decent money, something strange happened, something I'd never seen before. It added up. <laughs> well... What an inspiring tale, to be honest. Uh, Salute to you. King. Yeah. This is how you win in modern America. All right. Indeed. <laughs> oh, well, I, I, I'm glad you uh, uh, felt inspired by that, guys. You know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe this could be a kind of a backdoor pilot for a, a new recurring segment where I give legal and financial advice. Uh, yeah, no, Greg, I, I cut all that shit out. Google bankruptcy attorney near me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things you bring up that's interesting, I mean, the uh, the role of American ideology, of course, uh, runs throughout your whole story. And one of the interesting things uh, that occurred to me listening to it is, yeah, in Alone, right, there are two parties, right? So Indeed. Me, me taking the loan out. I'm making a gamble, right? My gamble is that I'm going to use this money in some way that presumably will allow me to have more in the future to repay back the loan. Now, that gamble can go one of two ways. I could succeed or I could fail, right? And if I fail, I'm not necessarily released from my obligation to pay, right? Some sort of pain is coming my way. It is interesting that for banks, uh, they are also in that gamble as well. Yes. They are buying up Greg Equity and, uh, you know, sometimes Greg Equity just goes straight into the toilet. And it's interesting, the 
amount of leeway they have to essentially, uh, you know, through force, not lose the bet. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just one of those things of when you think about how does capital create a sort of society and create a government, these are how it creates structures, right? Think about how uneven that relationship is between two parties who essentially, in capitalist theory, are equal parties meeting and you know taking equal risk. But it seems the risk is a bit one sided, I must say. Well, it is, it is precisely because the parties are unequal that, of course, like, I mean unreleasable debt has crumbled whole societies right like Mm -hmm. that's why bankruptcy protection exists you know that's that's why it was fought for in the first place it's it is necessary on some level but also it's only fair like you know again like the banks can handle the hit they're taking the uh, gamble but also fuck as we've seen they just get bailed out anyway you know yeah uh so more recently you know in america in the neoliberal period like this is out of alignment with the ideology of America and with the prerogatives of the bank, they'd like it to be harder. And yeah, it is still harder, but it is still there. Actually, they never, they weren't able to fully get rid of it. In some ways, the truth is they close by narrowing the door. They closed a lot of the kind of past that actually, if we're honest, did allow for genuine malfeasance, like, you know, <laughs> now cool malfeasance, cool crimes, but like, <laughs> uh, but like there was, kind of for years uh, from a certain like larcenous class of American, there was like rampant abuse of, of bankruptcy, uh, if you want to call it that from a certain mm-hmm. perspective, you know, what remains. And I think like so many people, most people are like, like I say, are not aware of it. They don't think of it and they think of it as something shameful. They think of it as like from monopoly where you lose the game, you know? Um, and like, it's this, this thing where also they assume you must be, destitute at the end where you get relieved from your debts but only when you you know but at the end of that you must be kicked out on the street with just the shirt on your back and bankruptcy protection was built to prevent that being the case you know otherwise yeah you're just at the poorhouse you know um and people aren't people have never been necessarily aware of that uh and and now again i think in addition to the victory that was for the banks, that was the 2005 bill. Um, there's a larger sort of propaganda victory that made people think without understanding it, like, Oh, it's gone. The thing is the, the more unequal our society gets, the more people are just poor. Uh, (laughs) the, the more people who are in debt, who actually still qualify for the, all the protections that bankruptcy ever granted. Um, and it is probably a real, uh, option for some people, something to look into, you know, something to, to eventually, again, only at the very end, think about. Yeah. Well, you know, finance, debt, these things, they're inherently predatory industries. And yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked about this and we talked about the Gates Foundation and what they were doing in Africa and things like that. But yeah, traditionally, uh, as the debt load has gotten higher and higher uh, in society, usually the society becomes more unstable, right? And governments have tried to find ways to mitigate that risk. Now, you know, historically, you would do debt jubilees and things Mm -hmm. like that, where the emperor, the king, whatever, the tribal leader would just say, hey, no more debt (laughs) by decree. Uh, We're just going back to, you know, the blank slate uh, because this has gotten too far. Uh, In the United States, though, the reliance is largely on ideology, right? So you have all these people. Yeah, there's some bankruptcy protections to help, right? 
But the main thing they rely on is ideology. And that word that you use, Greg, shame. Mm -hmm. Right. This idea that you should feel shamed that a predatory industry with billions of dollars uh, backed by the federal government took advantage of you, you know, that you're the one who's messed up in all this. Right. And uh, I think this Thanksgiving, we can lose the shame. Yeah. All right. We don't got to be Catholic about our finances. Lose the no. shame, everybody. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> They're out to get you. It's not your imagination. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this game is not for you to win. Don't feel bad if you're not winning it. If you're if you're if you're deep in debt, the the only thing you're doing, like, and you stay there, you're just going to be working to pay interest for the rest of your life. By the time, like I say, by the time you go out, like you'll still be in debt, and you'll be owing you'll be owing them, you know hundreds of thousands of dollars or something, but like you will have paid them way more than you ever mm -hmm. spent in interest over the course of your life. The longer that goes on and that's yeah. how they make the money, you know? Yeah. I mean, like you said, Greg, I mean, what struck me about your story was like a lot of your debt bill was actually interest. It wasn't the money that you necessarily spent. Right. And so it, even, even that, like, yeah, they took a risk and you know, they lost, but at the same time, um, a lot of that number is just, made up right yeah. like i mean the idea of interest especially compounding interest on credit cards which when it's like 18 to 23 percent right like that's just a number that they put on there um that's not like even you know something that was like bought so um yeah that's usually how debt gets out of control is just compounding interest against you now i um, got those i got those cards you know in the real cheap money era and locked them in and because i never you know defaulted until uh, close to the very end, you know, um, my rates were never insane. Mm -hmm. And so it would take a feat of um, forensic accounting to discover, like, how much of my bill in the end was interest. I like to believe that it wasn't all of it. I like to believe that some of that debt that got written down was actually um represented by real goods i had Greg used to still re here. retained in my oh, life no definitely yeah. I, you know i mean it's very clear that you 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 took a dub um on that <laughs> front for sure um <laughs> greg needs but... a win here moon yeah <laughs> uh so, yeah and i think you know uh for greg of course and all of our listeners you came by this debt honestly right because yeah. You live in America in which the material conditions require you to take on debt just to fucking survive, right? You also live in a country where the ideological environment uh, makes you insane <laughs> and uh, makes it to where you fundamentally don't understand the risk that is there, right, when you take on this kind of debt. So uh, by that very nature, you took it on honestly. So go to the government and say... Uh, Mr. Judge, uh, I have honestly taken on this debt, and because of circumstance, I cannot pay it. Uh, we need to begin liquidation. <laughs> mm -hmm. We've come to the end of our pageant spectacular. And every year around this time, we like to sit around our table, around our turkey that we got between us right now, and give thanks. Let, let our friends know, let our listeners know what we're thankful for this year. All right. Uh, who would like to start? 
I'll, uh, I'm happy to start. Um, I'm thankful for a feeling, a vibe that I was privileged to be able to share with my dear podmate Brian <laughs> this year. Uh, you know, we were uh, we were recording this very podcast and and uh, off mic, so to speak. My other very dear podmate was was telling a story, and uh, the details aren't important, but it was about a sad time when he had to cut his hair, when 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 Munya had to cut his hair <laughs> as a child, <laughs> and uh, Munya mentioned he had to cut off uh, his afro, and you know, no doubt in my mind that seven year little seven year old Munya was very cute and had a, a very cute little afro, and 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 the story went on, and and Munya eventually found a picture to show us, and. All he had to do was hold the phone up to the camera and <laughs> instantly Brian and I were wrapped catatonic in mutual soy face <laughs> facing each other through cameras both of us eyes wide mouth dropped in utter simultaneous astonishment for what felt like minutes uh, unable to speak at at the uh, astonishing the majesty of Munya's childhood afro uh, <laughs> blown away and I'm so glad I got to share that uh, I'm so glad I got to uh, share that moment with you uh, Munya and that that um, that cosmic connection that uh, of that uh, specific feeling that we shared Brian yeah, that was that was a great time. I think we broke the Google image search for Soyface uh, <laughs> at that moment. Uh, uh, yeah. Munya, do you have uh, something that you are thankful for? Yeah, I do. Um, I am thankful that with, I don't even know if it's fourth time is a charm, uh, but after many attempts to bring Greg across the Panama Canal, <laughs> the boy finally did it, and it I got to experience Greg's very first time in the Little Apple, New York <laughs> City. What a grand time that was. Um, really just like cool potting in person, showing Greg an actual breakfast sandwich for the first time. <laughs> and I could see his life flash before his eyes and just it changing him in the moment, munching down on that bagel, that breakfast bagel with the egg. And I just knew everything is now in its right place the actual cosmos have aligned again to be balanced and the world was a little better for it. Yeah. What you saw Munya flashing before my eyes was my life and it's regrets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, th I, I feel the same way, Munya. <laughs> well, uh, gentlemen, I am thankful for recording and getting to record a little show called ending the myth with my good friend Munya. Yes. And, Yes, we got to talk to people that uh, I think are awesome, and I was somehow able to force an interpersonal interaction between them and me, uh, <laughs> using the show as leverage to do so. Uh, yes, that was great. I enjoyed that. Uh, I enjoyed uh, Richard Wolf uh, basically talking without pausing to breathe for an hour and a half after asking him one question. <laughs> after asking, "How are you doing?" Um, <laughs> I enjoyed it. That's that kind of like New York energy that uh, I feel is lacking in the West Coast, and I liked it. Uh, but mainly, I enjoyed getting to know 
and hanging out weekly with my new friend, Munya. And it has been a great experience. Uh, there, in the weeks that we hadn't recorded, I always have a little Munya size hole in my heart. I'm like, oh, I didn't get to hang with Munya this week. You know, we didn't get to spend, as is our way, three hours bullshitting about nothing that has to do with the show before being like, oh no, we have to do something about the show now. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, that has been fantastic. And what a, what a great thing uh, to have this year. So I am thankful for that. It's my favorite time of the week, Brian. I totally agree. <laughs> and honestly, like, it, I mean, just it's it's been such a journey and as much as we're like kind of sharing what we learn i'm truly just learning so much just being on this journey in general mm-hmm. um and it's i don't know i mean it has like just so much positive impact on my life and doing it with you and i just couldn't think of you know a better partner to have so um yeah, yeah and it's just, just amazing yeah just a reminder listeners you can join us on that journey because we're picking it back up again in yep. two weeks all right we'll be back Can't wait. uh greg would you like to let's let's do one more round? Let's let's have uh, a skip things again. Yeah, as I said, I am thankful that um, my good friends Munya and uh, gosh, you know, uh, my very old friend Max finally got me to come out to New York. You know, Munya, as he said, has been trying for a while, but Max has been trying for like twelve years or something. Over a decade, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, this is really you know, Max's project coming to life. Although, kind of taking an L for Max. I mean, he spends a decade trying to get. Greg to go to New York. Munia spends like six months. Greg's there. Interesting. Well, well Listen, I mean, know. I think with with um, you know, Greg's stories and like uh, what was alluded to up top, I think Greg is in a little bit of a better place than he might have been. Yeah, <laughs> Max, Max loosened the Max loosened the lid. All right, we can all yeah. agree. He loosened and, the and- lid. What really seems like a good idea when you're broke all the time, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, how much fun could New York be? Yeah. Yeah, um, it is a city that requires a little bit of money. Yeah. <laughs> Can't be broke. Uh, I got to hang out with uh, my buddy Max, who, you know, I haven't gotten to a lot over the last decade. I got to meet uh, Max's uh, new little kid, Finn, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I had a great time. I saw a lot of sights. It was a great time. I got to hang out with Munio in person. Uh, which, you know, also I don't often get to do, which was a real treat. Um, he was a very uh, gracious and welcoming host as well. <laughs> oh, sweet. <laughs> uh, Munya, or uh, do you have another thing you are thankful for? I mean, yes. Um, I am going to say that I am thankful that even though we, you know, live on like basically <clears throat> two different coasts in a very big country that we're able to still just pump out bangers every week for our audience mm-hmm. and um you know we were able to figure it out um so i mean shout out to our pivot to covid to kind of setting the groundwork <laughs> for that but you know i've been here a year and a half now and like uh it just seems like we really like found a you know a good a groove despite like you know um distance not being able to record like just directly on the boat but also you know um at different um hours and you know to our listeners who are have been writing for us and been you know uh, chopping it up in the Discord. I really think because Twitter seems like it. Uh, I don't know what's happening with that platform, but <laughs> certainly its future is a little more uncertain than before. It's just still cool that we can have um, you know our community here. Uh, you know, with our patrons and Discord, it really actually like warms my heart to see um, that take off without really even our involvement that much in the community. <laughs> so I don't know. Just the whole the whole Mech Freak uh, you know community um, has just you know made made life great. Um, just mm-hmm. awesome. So, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Hey, the real posting is podcasting, and that's not going to stop. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think uh, you know, in finale here, I would like to thank Elon Musk, actually, and mm. no, not for the thing you think, for 
you know, years now since the pandemic started, our listeners have said, you guys aren't funny anymore. The show's depressing. Everything you talk about makes me sad. Do you really have to work your issues out weekly uh, for three hours on a podcast? (laughs) And the answer to all those questions is yes. But Elon has made comedy legal again. And Mm -hmm. that's been the real thing. So he has made comedy legal again, which means the show is going to get funnier. Yes, we're all still clinically depressed. Yes, the world is still terrible. Yes, we're all still going to die. But now uh, we're going to get a soundboard. We're going to have fart noises. Uh, we're going to have kazoos. Uh, we're going to have that thing that does the like, whoop, you know, noise, like you know, lasers, all that kind of stuff. Comedy is legal again. So listeners, buckle up. Uh, Mechanical Freak uh, version 7.0. I don't know where we're at at this point. It's about to take off, baby. <laughs> <laughs> One last special shout out to um, Sam Bankman Freud for um, actually like kind of uh, tossing a domino down on the you know crypto scam. What a, what a fun ride that that has been. So you know, finally maybe people can uh, you know get off of this like Ponzi scheme that's happening and yeah. like not lose their shirt yeah, uh, for while real. seeing fifty like thirty billion dollars vanish out of nowhere. Yeah, for real. Thanks, Tech, for giving us a endless amount of content and for always proving us right by just assuming you're the biggest dipshits on the fucking planet <laughs> and uh, making that always the correct position. So yes. uh, congrats out there to all of our tech overlords, Elon, Sam, Sam's Polycule, Jeff, uh, <laughs> Bill. Uh, it's all our overlords. Uh, thanks. And uh, we will look forward to you consuming us as a nutrient slurry uh, in the near future. <laughs> Mm. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, we'll draw the Thanksgiving pageant spectacular to a close. Number four in the books. Can you believe it, guys? Wow. Damn. What a world to be a part of. That's that's a, you know, weird. That's the last year of undergrad right there. Mm -hmm. You know, you might see, you know, an evolution or something. That's that's amazing. Every one of our listeners now has a degree in being unemployable. (laughs) All right. well, (laughs) We'll see everybody next week. And you know what? We'll see everybody next time. How about that? Uh, Next year, same time, same place. Thanksgiving app number five. (laughs) Boom. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.